Every single night for my entire life, I've had sleep problems. Where a normal person could hit the pillow and be asleep in a few minutes, it's always taken me several painful hours. Unless I go to bed early, I end up only getting a few hours of sleep every night if I'm lucky. Over the years, it's taken a toll on my mental health and physical health. I have hardly any energy throughout the day. I struggle to communicate properly, and just keeping a job is a struggle. I always tell myself it's my fault, that I need to try harder. Whenever one of my relationships break down, or when I lose another job, I blame myself. It just doesn't feel right to blame some sleeping disorder. Maybe if I had tried harder, none of it would have happened, I tell myself. Well, on to my experience. This happened when I was seven years old. It was an experience that probably worsened my condition. My family had recently moved to a new town, which meant a new school for me once again. At that time, I had moved every year since I had turned four. I guess I was used to it. Watching my mother and father load and unload boxes are some of my earliest memories. I thought it was normal. Meeting new kids at school and getting along with them only to be lifted away to a new place, never seeing them again. So at the age of seven, at this new school, I met a new friend. Let's call him Andy. Andy was in my class. And Andy loved video games, much like myself at the time. I was basically fused to my Game Boy, which helped me through a lot of moves and road trips. Andy and I liked the same games, had the same systems, and even read the same books. As the weeks passed in school, I got closer to Andy. It got to the point where, when Andy was gone for the day, it just didn't feel the same. It didn't feel right. Andy soon became my best friend my earliest and closest friend I can remember. Before long, he began asking me if I could sleep over. I'd never been to a sleepover before, but I was no stranger to them, having heard kids in my class talk about it from time to time. You know how kids are. Coming back to school after a weekend of a sleepover, bragging about staying up all night, laughing about inside jokes they had created together that no one else understood. Seeing those kids come back to school so happy, it made me excited that someone finally invited me to sleep over. There was no way I'd say no. But I would need my parents' permission, of course. The first time Andy asked me to sleep over, it was a Friday. I came home excited, ecstatic. I got off the bus and ran right to my mom, asking her if I could spend the night with my friend Andy. But my mother didn't smile or react in any positive way. Instead, she did this half-frown for about two seconds, then went back to doing what she was doing, before replying, Sorry, honey. We would need to know him and his parents a little bit better, okay? I was heartbroken, but I was not deterred. I pulled that all-too-well-known trick that kids do. Ask one parent, and if that fails, secretly ask the other. My dad got home a few hours later. The sun had already gone down, and he looked admittedly quite tired. I felt bad at first, thinking about going up to him while he was so exhausted and just got home. 
only to ask him for something that I wanted. Eventually, I built up the courage and went over. He didn't really acknowledge me at first. He placed his hand on my shoulder as he walked by, going to pour himself a glass of wine to relax for the evening. I followed in his tracks, trying to think of how to ask it in the most effective way. Hey, Dad, my best friend Andy asked me to sleep over, and I was... Do we know his parents? That was his immediate response. Uh, uh no, we haven't met his parents yet, but he's a really good kid, and I... Maybe some other time, son. Maybe after we get to know them. Man, I tell ya, after asking both of my parents for this, and being so excited about it, after being told no by both of them, I cried that night. But I soon got my hopes up again. They both said the same thing, basically. I couldn't go stay with Andy because we didn't know his parents very well. All we had to do was get them to know each other. I ended up calling Andy and letting him know what my parents said. We got a plan together to get our parents to meet up somewhere. Little did I know at the time this would take months. My parents were stubborn. I would let them know that Andy's parents invited them to a dinner for all of us, and they would even pay for it. But time and time again, my parents said no. They didn't have the time or they didn't feel like it. I thought it was never going to happen. Not until Andy's birthday came around. I think me coming home with an invitation to his birthday party finally convinced them to come meet Andy and his parents. That coming Saturday, we went to his birthday party. That was also the first time that Andy said something weird. We arrived at a Chuck E. Cheese. Pizza was already ready, along with ice cream and other unhealthy things. The day before, my parents asked me what sort of gift to get for Andy. I told him not to worry about it. I'd hand-wrapped a copy of Pokemon Yellow for him. It was actually my copy. It still had my save data on it. It was the only game of mine he never owned, and he was jealous of the Pokemon I had on it. So I thought it'd make the perfect gift. That day was so much fun. At one point that day, we decided to pull our tickets together. I can't really remember what we tried to win that day. I think it was some sort of giant stuffed animal or scooter or something, but I can't be sure. Probably because we didn't have nearly enough tickets to win. The whole time I kept a close eye on my mom and dad. As often as I could, I would try to nudge them into talking to Andy's mom and dad. Soon they were having a long conversation together. And when I overheard Andy's parents themselves ask if I could come over to stay the night with Andy, my mouth went wide open. There's no way they could say no now. And I was right. When the party wound down to a close a couple of hours later, I hugged my parents goodbye, and we were on our way to Andy's place. It was on the car ride there that Andy said something strange. I remembered asking him if I wanted to stay up all night, and he said no, almost right away, nearly interrupting me. He explained, almost nonchalantly, that I wouldn't like staying up late that it's best we do not stay up a second after midnight. When I asked why, it was the first time I'd seen him even slightly upset with me. I quickly replied with a never mind. 
I also took a moment to get to know his parents better. They were Christians, went to church every Wednesday and twice on Sundays, and they were farmers and owned lots of land, which probably explains why it took us an hour just to get to their house. My family had always lived in the suburbs, so driving longer than 10 or 15 minutes to get to someone's home was bizarre but exciting to me. Passing by a couple of miles of trees was interesting. I had never been the type of kid to play in the woods, but I was soon to get my chance. As soon as we pulled up in their driveway and parked, Andy basically dragged me out of the vehicle. He wanted to give me a tour of the place. He showed me the tire swing, where some wasps had built a nest inside the tire and he got his first wasp sting. I winced at the thought of an insect biting or stinging me. He showed me the log forts he was building out in the woods, which consisted of little more than fallen branches leaning on trees, piled with leaves. But you know what? I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. After a quick ten-minute tour of the outside, we went in, and he kept asking me if I wanted to camp outside tonight. Camping was another thing I'd never done before. I said yes, and we both begged his mom and dad if we could stay outside and camp in the yard. They said yes, under the conditions that we keep some bug repellent, and we keep the tent out of the woods. We then dragged all the camping equipment we could outside, and set it up a little too fast. Admittedly, I don't think either of us really knew how to set up a tent. It came out wobbly, but it stood up, and we could crawl inside, so that was good enough for us. We then ran inside after Andy convinced me that I should try a s'mores. We made a little fire pit, roasted marshmallows and chocolate, put them on graham crackers, and with one bite, I was hooked. At a certain point that night, Andy needed to go fetch more firewood from the wood line, and I went in to fetch more graham crackers. Once inside, I went to ask if I could grab more graham crackers. It was his mother I found first. She replied with a smile. Yeah, go ahead, but make sure you don't get yourself sick out there. It is the weekend, though, so I don't mind you guys staying up as long as you want, okay? But if you're tired at church in the morning, that's your own fault. I smiled and thanked her, then walked away. Once I rounded the corner, I paused for a moment. She was okay with us staying up all night. So why had Andy made a deal about it? I grabbed the graham crackers and raced outside. Andy was already back at the fire pit, stoking the flames, munching down on a marshmallow. I ran over to him and placed the graham cracker bag on the ground next to the Hershey bag. Hey, I've got good news, I said. Your mom said we could stay up as late as we want, even past twelve. Right away, Andy looked upset. Uh, no, 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 we have to go to bed by twelve. We have to be asleep by twelve. I told you that. I frowned, confused, and I apologized. After a few awkward minutes, the night went on as normal. But I did notice that the closer it got towards twelve, the more Andy would stare toward the woods. I asked him what's wrong, but he simply said that he liked watching for deer. But that didn't explain why he looked so worried while he watched. I didn't question him about it again that night, though. By 11.50, Andy was tucking himself into his sleeping bag in the tent, telling me to do the same. Without a fuss, I listened. We zipped up the tent, turned off the lantern, 
and went to sleep. At least, that's what Andy did. As I said at the start, I've always had trouble sleeping. Andy was out like a light within three minutes or so. I could tell from the way he was snoring lightly. By 11.59 or so, I tossed and turned enough to know that it was another one of those mostly sleepless nights. I sighed and just dealt with it, turning over on my left side and keeping my eyes shut, trying not to let my mind wander too much. A few minutes later, I heard something coming from outside the tent. They were footsteps. Something was walking around along the wood line, and whatever it was, it didn't seem to care about being quiet. When I heard the footsteps break the wood line and begin to approach the tent, I nearly cried in fear. It's just a deer. It's just a deer. I told myself in my head over and over again, each second the footsteps drawing closer until they passed the tent. As the steps sounded like they were walking away towards the house, I reached over and shook Andy. Wake up. There's someone outside. His snoring stopped, but he didn't stir. For the next few seconds, I expected him to react or respond to me, but he didn't. I crawled over towards him. He was on his right side, so I couldn't see his face. I raised my head over him to check if he was awake. My heart felt as if it was going to collapse, because when I looked at his face, his eyes were wide open, and they were staring straight ahead, blankly, at the nylon tent wall. I couldn't even bring myself to ask him what was wrong. I tried to not be afraid. Maybe he was asleep still, just with his eyes open. I shook my head, telling myself that I was being paranoid. I went to unzip the tent. I wanted to see who was walking around outside. The moment the metallic zipper sounded, Andy, without moving, spoke. What time is it? I stopped what I was doing and searched for Andy's watch, which he took off before going to sleep. I found it next to him, and I read it. Ah, 12.04, I answered. Then Andy said this, Stay in the tent. The way he said that, it chilled me to the bone, so much so that I nearly listened. But knowing that I would be up all night, forced to listen to what was walking around out there, I had to peek out and see what I would be dealing with. My best friend didn't understand because I hadn't told him yet that it took me hours to go to sleep if I went to sleep at all. He didn't understand that I wouldn't be able to handle not knowing what it was outside. So I didn't listen. I unzipped the tent, yet Andy didn't say another word. I poked my head outside, but as the tent was facing the woods, that meant the house was directly behind us. So I crawled out further, until everything waist up was outside the tent. Then I was able to peek around the corner. There I saw Andy's front porch. His parents left the light on, so we'd have some source of light besides a fire or lantern. I scanned the surroundings for about a minute, but I didn't see anything weird. 
there was no movement. But from that angle, I couldn't see the left side of the house, as the tent was taking up most of my view on that side. So I resituated myself, bending my body to the opposite side of the tent and peeking around that corner. From there, I could see the darker side of Andy's house, where his bedroom was on the second floor. The little square window to his bedroom was right there. I looked around for another minute or so, and still did not see movement. I was seconds away from pulling my head back into the tent. When I paused, there was something there that didn't really make sense. A silver or gray-looking pole right in front of Andy's window, not even an inch away from the house. He had shown me his room earlier in the evening. I remember looking out that window, and I do not remember a pole being right in front of it. Besides, why would they build a pole so close to the house, let alone blocking the view of the window like that? I observed that weird structure, looking up, then down, until I realized what I was looking at was not a pole at all. A pole does not have two legs, two arms, and a head. Its limbs were like rods coming out of it, so perfectly thin and proportioned, as if each inch of it was industrially made. One of the rods, perhaps an arm, was next to the one that appeared to be its head. I then realized the reason I hadn't seen it move was because it seemed to be staring into Andy's window. This tall, unnaturally shaped, and unnaturally thin creature was looking into the glass, and I was standing there outside with it, now too afraid to breathe or move. This thing was so perfectly still that I was still able to try to convince myself that it was some natural or man-made object, and that the dark of the night was making it look like something it wasn't. But the horror of the situation was certain, when a coyote call came echoing from the woods behind me, or rather in front of the tent, and that pole or rod-like creature twisted around and faced the woods. I yanked my head away from the corner of the tent, out of its sight, as quickly as I could, dreading the fact that my small movements had made the tent material ruffle up a bit. I prayed that it hadn't heard me, this two-story tall, thin thing. My inner voice spoke in my head, repeating incomplete sentences, making excuses for my fear. Just a nightmare. Just a dream. Not awake. Not real. But I knew better than that. Andy continued to pretend to be asleep as the footsteps began to approach the tent again. My heart pounded more and more. Seven years old, and it felt as if I was going to die from a heart attack. I lay back in my sleeping bag, silently. I closed my eyes, and I hoped beyond hope that that thing didn't come for us. I was on my back, eyes completely shut. The footsteps stopped right beside the tent. I'd been so scared to make a noise that I didn't even zip up the front of the tent. I kept my body like that, stiff 
eyes closed, lying on my back, for at least two hours, waiting to hear the noise of that thing walking back into the woods, waiting for something that made me realize that none of this was real, and that everything was going to be okay. Imagine that, two hours in the dark in a tent outside, eyes closed the entire time and not hearing anything else. Things being silent that long, it gives you a sense of security. Maybe that's why I felt as if I needed to open my eyes then, just to see what was going on. If it was outside still, perhaps the porch light would allow me to see its silhouette somehow. But when I opened my eyes, facing the top of the tent from the inside, I saw a smooth, dark ray rod parallel with the ground, parallel with me. That thing's head had reached inside the tent and was staring down at me. I never expected to get myself this close to it. But now that it was only inches away, I could see the throbbing red veins underneath its gray skin. Yes, red veins. I could see that its rod-like structure was in fact fleshy in texture. It even glistened somewhat with whatever light from the porch made it through the tent. I tried to search for an eye, but the closest thing to a face I found was a very thin and nearly unnoticeable slit right in the middle of the upper part of the rod. It seemed to vibrate a bit as well. I could not close my eyes anymore. I could not breathe, even. How long had its head been in the tent with us, I wondered. How long had we not been alone? Suddenly, more coyote calls came from within the woods, much closer than they had been before. It must have startled this thing, because it stood stark straight up, bringing with it the tent. Everything inside the tent began to fall out, Andy and I included. We hit the ground at nearly ten feet high. I wanted to scream when I landed on the tips of my fingers on one of my arms, but I held it back. I'd watched Andy fall with me, and it was the most insane thing. When he hit the ground, he didn't react, didn't stiffen up at all. He stayed loose and limp, playing dead or just asleep desperate not to let that thing know he was there. With Andy's tent now looped around its body, stopping just at where its shoulders should have been, the creature walked into the forest and disappeared. When we could no longer hear its footsteps, Andy jumped up, grabbed me by the shoulder, and got us both to run inside. Once we were safely inside the house, I told him we needed to tell his parents, but he panicked and said no. No matter what I said, he refused to tell anyone else. He apparently had plenty of excuses as to why we couldn't do that. They wouldn't believe us. They'd never let you come back to stay the night. My parents would never let us talk again. Things like that. I know now these were probably silly excuses for something so dire and dangerous, but as kids, our friendship seemed to matter more than anything. I was convinced that he was right. If any of our parents knew about this incident, they would never let us hang out again, and I wasn't going to let that happen. We didn't sleep that night. I could tell Andy was tired, but he wanted to stay awake with me, 
after I finally explained my sleeping problem to him. We were exhausted in the morning, and it didn't take long for his mom and dad to notice that I was babying my fingers. I explained that I had tripped up the steps and fallen on them, so they bandaged them up for me and called my parents to come pick me up so they could tend to my injury. As you could probably guess with my parents, they were not at all happy getting their son back injured. Turns out all the fingers in my hand except for my thumb were broken. And despite no matter how much I pleaded, they told me that I would not be allowed over there. That was the first and last time I got to spend the night with Andy. As was now usual with our family, we ended up moving at the end of the school year, but Andy and I made the best of it. We had fun, catching up on the new games together, sharing our theories as to what that creature was. He even told me that that thing had been visiting him for a long time. That's why he was so adamant about going to sleep before twelve, because that's when it came. Usually, it would be at his window, tapping at the glass and he would ignore it. Eventually, I asked him why he felt brave enough to camp outside with me, knowing that that thing might come by. He explained that having a friend over made him feel brave, made him feel safe, and he figured that if we stayed quiet, the thing would just go away. And I'll give him credit for that. He was right. That creature had only been looking in his window until it heard me moving around in the tent. Andy and I tried to stay in touch after I moved. For the first year, we made regular phone calls to each other. But regular phone calls turned into infrequent phone calls, which then turned into no phone calls. Now, I haven't heard from him in decades. I hope he's doing okay, and I hope him and his family moved too. Anything to get him away from that thing... We'll never know what it was, but I do know this. I have a sleeping problem, and after that incident, it had never been worse. Our Last Sleepover From Clara Berry, 06 I used to have a friend named Emma. We were close ever since we met in kindergarten, and our relationship lasted all the way into our senior years of high school. Emma was always an odd kid, to put it lightly. I loved her for it, of course, but it was difficult for her to fit in with other children. Ever since I knew her, she had strong anxiety that would cause her to panic over the smallest social nuances. Because of this, she didn't enjoy conversing with people very often and this led to her searching for different kinds of friends, namely imaginary ones. The oldest memory I have of her imaginary friend, who she called Tolly, presumably because she described him as a tall, thin man, goes back to first grade. We were playing together, or maybe we were coloring, and she continuously looked behind her out the window. What you looking at? I asked as innocently as a kid ever could. Tolly, she said, smiling. He's my friend. After saying this, she turned around and waved at someone out the window, 
apparently beyond my view, because I remember looking myself and seeing no one. Ordinarily, most kids would abandon their imaginary friends pretty early on in development, or at least they'd recycle them into a new character, more suited to their interests. Emma, however, stayed consistent. All throughout early grade school, she would talk about Tolly. At recess, she would go to the fence of the schoolyard and have conversations with Tolly, something she would get bullied for. She'd always tell me stories about him, like when they walked home after school. He pulled her up onto his shoulders so she could pick a pear from a tree. She even tried to show me Tolly a few times and pointed him out to me, but I could never see what she saw. It must have been fifth grade when we first had a confrontation about it. As we ate our lunch together, she kept going back and forth between talking to me and talking to Tolly, who she said was right next to us. This made me upset, and I told her she wasn't a baby anymore, and she had to stop talking to her imaginary friend. Without flinching, she told me sternly that he was not imaginary, and then she just kept eating. She rarely talked about Tolly's appearance, but from the pieces I stitched together, he was an incredibly tall and thin man. She said he dressed fancy. On one occasion, she said his face did not look like ours, before trying to draw it on a piece of paper. What she drew looked nothing like a human face, but instead that of a stick man. All that was present were two thin lines for eyes and a large outline of a half-circle for a smile. Tolly stayed the same, more or less, for the next while. That was until tenth grade. As we were leaving the school one day in early September, a group of girls came up to us. One stepped forward before pulling Emma's head by her hair and throwing her to the ground insulting her about the short haircut looking boyish. They then strutted away, giggling. I remember Emma bleeding a little from her forehead, but she insisted she was all right, so we just walked home. The next day, the girl who attacked Emma from the day before was not present in my math class. She wasn't in the next class either. It was that Friday when I began to see signs up all over the school with the girl's photo, telling us she was missing. Eventually, all around our neighborhood, you'd find posters of the girl, and occasionally you'd even run into a pleading family member, holding up a photo, asking if you'd seen her. It was months before the police found her. She was dead, found drowned in a lake that was about four kilometers from our school. I never spoke about this girl with Emma, and there's no concrete evidence connecting her bullying Emma to her disappearance, but I still think it's pretty coincidental. That same year, Emma and I decided to have a sleepover. Both her mom and dad were attending an adult Halloween party of sorts. They were always very careful with Emma and wanted to hire a babysitter, but they thought it would be okay for me to stay over as they thought I was mature enough to take care of her. The night was pretty fun. We'd hand out candy to kids in costumes, and we gorged on snacks ourselves while watching iconic horror films. 
Strangely, a few times the door was knocked on, but when we went to check, nobody was there. We finally decided to go to bed around twelve that night. Emma was sleeping in her bed, and I was on the floor of her room in a sleeping bag. We were able to fall asleep easily, and everything remained fine until about three in the morning. That's when I woke up. I didn't know why I woke up, but I sat up in my sleeping bag, stretching. I could see Emma was still asleep, and I was about to try to go back to bed when I looked toward the window. From the streetlight outside, I could barely see a shadow was being cast on the window blind. To this day, I still remember what it looked like. It was a very tall man, and from his size, he seemed to be right outside. I screamed, and Emma woke up instantly, looking at me and then towards the window, before yelling something along the lines of, Go away! I told you you're too close! That morning, I tried to ask her about it. All she said was, Ah, uh, yeah, Tully can be creepy sometimes. This event became a vivid memory in my mind, but Emma and I remained best friends. I tried not to judge her for her stories about Tolly, but kept a mental note that they weren't real, deciding that what I must have seen was just a shadow of a tree cast onto her window. I believed this for another few years, until the summer of twelfth grade. After finishing high school, we were ecstatic. We hung out more than we ever had before in that year. It was one day in late August when Emma said we should go camping. Her property bordered a forest, so we thought we'd just set up a tent at the edge of her yard in the woods. That way, we'd get the scenery of camping without having to pack up and go anywhere. And that's what we did. As we set up the tent, her dad told us he'd leave the back door unlocked, so we could just come in if we needed something. It was starting to get dark around nine, so we went inside the tent. We snacked on marshmallows and other candy for a while, and before we knew it, we were ready to fall asleep. As we were talking about what we should do when we got up, we heard something outside the tent. It sounded like twigs snapping. One would break every couple of seconds, and we could tell it was moving gradually closer. Quickly, we got out of our tent, and I shined the flashlight around. We didn't see anything, though. Assuming it was a coyote that would most likely ignore us anyway, we got back in, Preparing to sleep, only ten minutes later, we heard the sound again. It sounded closer still and slower, like whatever it was, was getting near. Sold on the theory that it was an animal, I decided to get out of the tent, and this time I called out to the woods, trying to scare whatever was out there. I shined my flashlight around the trees again, and out of the corner of my eye... I saw something move. It was only for a fraction of a second, but to my right, deep in the trees, I thought I saw something black darting away. It was strange. I couldn't imagine what animal it was. I wasn't scared, though, because it looked like whatever it was was warded off by my light. Finally, we went to sleep, with no more disturbances. 
That was until, like the last time, about three in the morning. I woke up with a slight feeling of unease. Instantly, it reminded me of the Halloween sleepover. I quickly checked my watch, and to my horror, it was just past three. It was then that I heard another hard snap of a branch outside. This time, it was very loud. Whatever had made it had to be just outside the tent. I silently tugged at Emma's hand, waking her up. I put my finger to my lips to tell her to remain quiet, and we just listened. A few minutes later, we heard another snap. We both grew scared, as it was clear something was right outside our tent. Without much thought, I shouted, Run! And we both clambered out of the tent, taking off towards the back door. It was about a thirty-second run. The entire time, I could hear something just on our heels, breathing heavily, almost wheezing. We made it to the door, and Emma tried opening it, jostling the handle. It's locked! she yelled. She kept trying to turn the handle and pounded on the door. We both began to cry. The porch light was on, so I turned around to see what had been chasing us. To my horror, I saw Tolly, the one and only. It stood barely visible about fifteen yards from the porch. It was exactly like how Emma described tall, at least eight feet, with disproportionately long limbs. Its arms hung down almost to its knees. The sheer inhumanity of the thing was terrifying. It wore an undersized black suit with a red tie. Its skin was a pale white and leathery, looking almost wet, and its face was not the face of a stick man. Instead of two thin eyes, it had these deep black holes where pupils should have been and its mouth was a similar hole, only bigger. Pointed daggers of teeth reflected the porch light. I screamed, and Emma kept pounding on the door, tears streaming down her face. At that point, I wasn't sure if she was looking at him, too. Suddenly, the door swung open, and Emma fell inside. We were greeted by her father, who looked angry. He asked us, who the heck locked the door, and why we were bawling our eyes out. Emma only hugged him as I took a seat. After that event, Emma and I lost touch. We'd invite each other to places and hang out, but we were always distracted. I could never bring Emma to talk about Tolly, and the harder I pushed, the more emotional she would get. Eventually, we stopped speaking entirely. I don't think I would have written this if it weren't for what happened recently. Fast forward a few years, I'm studying abroad when I get a call from an unknown number with the area code of the city I grew up in. I answered, and an older woman spoke. Hello, is this Clara? That's me. Who is this? Um, I don't know if you remember me. It's Emma's mom. Confused, I replied. Oh, hi. What can I do for you? Well, I know you two haven't spoken in a while. I'm just wondering if you've heard from her, or maybe she's staying with you. We haven't seen her in a few days, and she won't answer her phone. 
My heart sank. My mind went through flashbacks of Tolly in the woods. I tried my best to muster a reply. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I haven't heard from her. I'm actually not in town at the moment. But if I hear anything, I'll let you know. I hung up after that. I really hope Emma returns home soon. Maybe she's just with a friend, or a partner. People need breaks from their parents sometimes, right? I can't help but be paranoid, though. What if her disappearance is somehow related to Tolly? I never thought about how our last sleepover came and went without me even realizing it. And now it's very possible I'll never speak to Emma again. Sleepover Seance from Twisted Starlight I have a sleepover story I'd like to share. First off, I should mention that at the time this story took place, it wasn't our first time interacting with the occult. I was with two close friends of mine, who I'll refer to as A and K. They had stayed the night at my house many times before, and we agreed that for probably the third time together, we'd use a Ouija board. We knew that they weren't toys. We knew how dangerous they could be. But the three of us had always been interested in the possibility of speaking and interacting with another entity on the other side. Before we used the board, we said a prayer, lit some candles, burned some incense, and gathered whatever we could find as some sort of spiritual protection. Crystals, silver, and other stuff of the sort. We encountered a spirit who called himself Warren, though he didn't seem malevolent, and previous seances we had with spirits like him had gone very well. The spirit seemed very weak, and claimed to be old. We had only gotten to speak to him for a certain amount of time, before the board we owned and had made ourselves began to catch the planchette and get stuck, we paused the seance and said goodbye to Warren, and worked to fix the planchette in order to continue. As we worked on the planchette, we talked, and ultimately a small argument broke out between K and I. A was silent the entire time. We resolved our tension, and A finally spoke up, asking us if we felt as if we were still alone. I hadn't realized it before, but the air seemed considerably tenser and heavier as if there was another presence. The three of us agreed that we'd pick up our seance and attempt to contact Warren again. Can we please speak to Warren? I asked. The planchette responded immediately with no. This struck us as odd, given we'd used the board a couple of times before, and we'd never received an answer so quick. Who is this? I asked, a bit warily. The board spelled out the name Saturn. We spoke to Saturn briefly, and she revealed to us that she had died within the last ten years. Warren apparently died a very long time ago, so long, in fact, he couldn't recall the exact year. Saturn also told us that she was a cancer patient who had died following chemotherapy. The three of us soon ran out of questions, and we became unsure of what we should ask her. Kay suggested that speaking about their death might be difficult for a spirit, and instead we should ask a question that would seem lighthearted. What's your favorite color? 
The board immediately responded, spelling out, Croak. We paused, confused, and asked what it meant. The board spelled out, Croak, again. The three of us sat there, uncertain as to what to do, before the board began to spell out Croak for a third time. Kay began to cry and begged us to say goodbye. We quickly shut off the session and attempted to comfort Kay, who at this point was sobbing hysterically. We asked what was wrong, and she quickly explained that the first time the board spelled croak, she started to feel sick. The second time, the feeling worsened, and the third time was overwhelming. We managed to calm her down, and we put away the board. The rest of the night was surprisingly calm. It wasn't until several weeks after that, A told me that after that night we had spoken to Saturn, she had recurring nightmares of all her hair falling out. I'm not sure why Saturn reacted the way she did. Perhaps she thought Kay was being disrespectful, or not taking her seriously. I've never personally been as connected with the board as my two friends have, and I've used the board after the events of this story. However, everything that happened that night seemed out of place and disturbing compared to my other seances. I think that maybe the negative energy of Kay and I arguing attracted a dangerous entity. I've had other weird experiences with Ouija boards, though none had come as close to haunting my friends with nightmares and causing them to feel overwhelming amounts of nausea. Regardless, Saturn is not a spirit I want to encounter again, and at sleepovers in the future, I'll do my best to avoid any sort of seances similar to the one I experienced that night. Only One From Amanda B. This took place when I was a teenager, around 13 or 14. I was living with my grandparents at the time. Their house always had this vibe to it. Like at night, I was always afraid someone would be standing at the windows or at the front or back door, but no one would ever be there. My best friend at the time, Cassie, was sleeping over at my place. We had a small mattress set up on my floor. It was beside my bed, and my TV stood on the dresser at the foot of my bed. We were watching movies when Cassie fell asleep. All the lights were still on and the movie was still going. I wasn't tired. I was playing Sims or chatting with someone on my laptop. When I hear movement, I figured it was just Cassie turning over or something. I looked over, and not only were her eyes wide open, but she was now sitting up. She didn't say a word at first. Dude, you good? I asked. She glanced at me and got out of her bed. She went to her backpack by the door. Cass, are you okay? I was getting weirded out. She was always a prankster, so I figured she was going to do something along the lines of a jump scare. But no, she went into her bag and grabbed her sketchbook. I kept trying to get her to say something to me, but she was looking for a page in her book. Eventually, she found it and turned the book toward me, showing me the drawing she did. It was this creepy-as-heck tree, bare branches, nothing around it. A tree that you would expect to see outside a haunted house on Halloween. I looked at her. She was staring at me with a blank face. 
I'm the only one that knows, she said. My first thought was, she's all in on this one, I guess. I replied, what are you talking about? Stop screwing with me, dude. She then repeated herself, I'm the only one that knows. I'm the only one that knows. She kept saying it over and over, very calmly as she crawled back into her bed on the floor next to me. Dude, are you even serious right now? I said, trying to get her to crack a smile or say she was messing with me, but she didn't. She just kept repeating herself over and over, until she lay down on her back in the bed and placed the open sketchbook on her chest, with the tree facing up. I sat there dumbfounded. What the heck was this about? I did my best to shrug it off. I'll get her to confess to trying to freak me out in the morning, I thought. Another hour or so later, I turned off the lights and fell asleep as well. In the morning, she woke me up and asked why her sketchbook was in her bed. I looked at her exasperated. You put it there, remember? What the heck were you even talking about last night? She looked at me incredibly confused. What do you mean? She asked. Uh, don't even tell me you don't know what you did. Come on now, you're just trying to freak me out. Stop. I replied, really irritated with her. Prank. Seriously, what did I do? I explained what she did from sitting up in the bed to lying back down with that book. So what did you mean you're the only one that knows? Knows what? She looked pretty freaked out herself at this point. I don't remember any of that. I swear to God. It took me a minute, and after a lot of convincing, I started to think she was telling me the truth. I'm 28 now, and I no longer speak to Cassie. We never figured out what she could have meant that night. I'm still perplexed to this day. Now that I think back on it, a lot of weird stuff was felt or happened when Cassie was around. I'm kinda glad I don't talk to her anymore, given all these scary stories I listen to now. I'm sure we would be seeing more than we ever wanted to. Something Watching From The Glass Doors From Mint Green Teacup This story happened around the beginning of August when I was 13. My best friend at the time, Cece, was having a big sleepover for her own 13th birthday, and she invited at least 10 of our friends, including our friend Julie, who rode over to Cece's house with me. Thanks to my mom for taking us and dealing with us singing at the top of our lungs while we went there. Like all sleepovers, we did the normal things. Playing games, eating junk food, staying up late talking and watching whatever we could find on TV that held our interest for over five minutes. Now, before I go any further, I'd like to point out that Cece had two cats at the time, but they were skittish and didn't want to be around a bunch of noisy 13-year-olds. So, Cece's mom and dad took them to bed with them. Like I said before, everything was just like a sleepover should be. We soon settled down to watch another movie, which was code for we were all super tired, but didn't want to admit it. By then, it was around two in the morning. 
Eventually, we all settled down and did go to sleep. I fell asleep on one of these sofas that was clear to see from the glass doors that led outside to the backyard, and Jolie fell asleep on the floor next to me. I don't know how long it was until Jolie woke me up, but it was still dark outside when she did, and when I asked her what was wrong, her exact words were, Something is looking at us. I'm going to admit, it annoyed me since she had woken me up from sleep, so I buried my face back into the sofa pillow that I was using. From there I replied, It's just one of the cats. Then she said something that freaked me out. Jolie told me it was standing outside looking at us. And that's when my sleepy mind remembered that the cats were with Cece's parents, which made me finally turn to look down at Julie, who was looking straight at the glass doors. I followed her gaze and let my eyes stop on what she had been looking at. There, crouching on the other side of the glass doors was a figure watching us with bright yellow eyes. I couldn't make out what the rest of it looked like back then, and I don't know what it looked like now, but I can remember the eyes. For a few moments, Julie and I just stared at the thing, and it just stared back at us, something moving its head a little, but it didn't really do much. Finally, after a few long minutes... I pressed my face back into the pillow and tried to ignore whatever it was, and I told Julie to do the same. I told her to just go to sleep, and it would go away. So that's exactly what the both of us did. We tried to go to sleep. The next morning when both of us woke up, we didn't talk about what happened the night before, and we didn't tell anyone either. We just ate our breakfast alongside the others, before going to hang out with our friends before our parents came to pick us up. I wish I knew what had been looking at us. Scary Sleepover From Nina I'm an 18-year-old girl living in Belgium. I encountered some creepy things over the years, but this was my first creepy encounter. It happened when I was 12 or 13. I always go to my niece for sleepovers. It was summer and very hot, so we decided to sleep in a tent in her backyard. My niece has one creepy neighbor. He's in his 40s and lives with his mother. He has a weird illness that makes him mentally a child. Every time my niece and I play in the backyard, he watches us from his window Sometimes he comes outside and stands at the fence that divides our backyard from his. He just stands there and watches us. Whenever he does this, my niece and I would just go inside and watch TV or something. My niece has a very big backyard, and at the end of it is a small gate. All the houses have that, and there's a small muddy road. If you walk that little road, you walk past every backyard of the neighbor's. On the other side of the little road is a giant cornfield, so the only use for the road is walking from backyard to backyard. I would say the road is three kilometers long. One day when I was over for a sleepover, my niece and I wanted to play in the cornfield, so we walked to her backyard through the little gate into the cornfield. After a few hours of playing, we headed back inside for dinner. 
My niece told me to close the gate behind me. But it was pretty dark, and my niece was already inside the house. A noise scared me, and I rushed inside the house, leaving the gate open. I didn't tell anyone, though, because I didn't want to get in trouble. After dinner, my niece and I went inside our tent. After a while, it began to rain a little, but it didn't really bother us. After taking some pictures and going on Omegle, we decided to just talk for a bit. Then, out of nowhere, we heard footsteps outside the tent. We thought it was my uncle trying to scare us, so my niece texted him saying he shouldn't scare us because if I would cry, my parents would get mad. It was a dumb excuse, but he texted okay. Me and my niece decided that we were going to sleep then. After a few minutes, I heard a sound, like someone went with their fingers over the tent's surface, so I opened my eyes, but it was pitch black. I couldn't see a thing. When I looked towards my niece, she was awake and sitting up. That I could see. I whispered to her, Do you hear that? She shook her head. I asked her if it could be her father, but she whispered back, I don't think so. Why would he do that? Then the sound stopped, but we heard footsteps walking around the tent to the tent opening. My niece and I always locked our tent with a small, cheap, 20-cent lock, just to make us feel safer. But then the tent began to shake. Someone was trying to open it. After a minute or so, the shaking stopped. I was confused. I really thought it was my uncle trying to scare us, but my niece was convinced it was not him. The next few hours, nothing happened. Not a sound. I had to go to the bathroom, and I shook my niece awake and told her I needed to go. She went to the tent opening to open it, and she went outside. I followed her. After I was done, we walked back to the tent, but I heard a branch break behind us. We flew half running, half jumping back inside the tent, yet a black mass entered the tent with us. As quickly as possible, we pulled out our flashlights. Then we began to laugh. It was my niece's cat. I quickly blamed the cat for the noises beside the tent and all that, but my niece looked a little worried. I asked why, and she said, Nothing. You're right. It's just the cat. I slept for maybe an hour before my niece woke me up to say that she had to go to the toilet. I did a thumbs up and went back to sleep. I woke up again to the sound of the tent opening. I thought it was my niece coming back from the toilet. It was dark, so I couldn't see her. She closed the tent, and I asked, Kelly, what time is it? But she didn't answer. Instead, I heard someone giggle. I felt my heart sink into my stomach. It wasn't my niece. I was terrified, but couldn't move or scream. I was frozen. Then I heard the back door of the house open. That was my niece coming back from the restroom. When she approached the tent and tried to open it, the person in the tent with me held it closed with their hand. Then my niece yelled, Nina, it's not funny. Open the tent. I started crying and yelling, Kelly, help me! Then I felt a hand cover my mouth and a voice say, Don't scream. Don't scream. I just want to play, okay? Don't scream. I was crying, thinking I was going to die. Then I heard my uncle's voice yelling, 
my uncle ripped the tent open. I looked up and saw that the man who was holding me was my niece's creepy neighbor. He was horrifying. My uncle quickly wrestled the neighbor to the ground and started to hit him. I was crying into my niece's arms. She was crying too. The creepy neighbor was starting to cry too. My uncle was hitting him and yelling, You perv! You're going to prison, you sick maniac! At that moment, the mother of the creepy neighbor walked outside, yelling, What the heck is going on? My uncle quickly explained the situation, that he found him alone in the tent with me, holding me hostage. The creep yelled, No, Mama, I just wanted to play with them. No, no, no. He got something out of his pocket, a set of cards. He yelled with tears running down his face, I just wanted to play. My uncle yelled that he was going to call the cops, but the woman begged him not to. She told him that he's not dangerous and would never harm us. He just wanted to play with us. The creepy neighbor was bleeding from his head, and after a big and loud conversation between the mom of the creep and my uncle, he let the creep go. But if he ever goes in our backyard again, my uncle said he would call the cops. When we were inside, my uncle gave us some warm milk and some cookies. My niece and I slept on the couch that night. The next morning, we got a cake from the creepy neighbor. It had a card, with him telling us how sorry he was. We threw the cake away. We never told my parents because we didn't want to get in trouble. My uncle thinks that the creepy man entered into the backyard through the gate, the one that I didn't lock. It was my fault, I thought. You'd think the story was over then, but a year ago, when I was seventeen, I went to my niece's and slept inside a tent in the backyard again. Nothing happened all night, and it was very peaceful. But when we woke up the next day, we saw a big footprint of a shoe next to the tent. I guess it was that creepy neighbor again, but of course, we couldn't prove it. So to my niece's creepy neighbor, let's not meet again. This episode is brought to you by the Hulu original series, Hellstrom. It's our favorite time of year again, folks. And this year, Hulu is bringing you something exciting. A mature, suspenseful, scary, and action-packed series. This is Marvel Television-produced Hellstrom. Based on characters from Marvel Comics and showcasing stellar performances by the cast including Tom Austin and Sidney Lemon, Hellstrom is a supernatural tale from the dark side of the MCU, it is essentially the story of a very complicated family. A woman who fell in love with a bad guy discovered it much too late, and a horrible, traumatic family incident that tore everyone apart. It's the story of two broken children who are estranged and raised separately, becoming two very different people. Hellstrom is not the typical superhero comic book reimagination. It's more horror which is why I'm looking forward to it. It's a series that's not just about battling actual demons. It's also about people overcoming their personal demons, dealing with family trauma, and rising above the darkest part of ourselves. So don't miss it. All episodes of Hulu's Hellstrom are now streaming only on Hulu. The Witch of Mount Aziza From Gazebo King My story begins outdoors. 
my friend Ricky and I, enjoyed hikes through the woods. We always found it a great way to relax after the work week, and so every Saturday, we'd make the 30 or so kilometer drive to Mount Aziza. It's a beautiful national park in northwestern British Columbia, featuring a huge amount of woods that climb the gradual slopes of the mountain. That day was no different from our usual. We were working our way up a trail, occasionally photographing the natural scenery. Now, keep in mind this park is very isolated, as in it's in the middle of nowhere. It's a minimum hour drive from the nearest town, and the lack of accessibility led to it being one of British Columbia's less popular parks. Very rarely do you ever meet another person on the trails. That's why when my friend first mentioned it, I thought he was messing with me. I was bending down to tie my boot when Ricky quietly said, Whoa, out loud. I look up. What is it? He glances at me before turning and searching up the path. I just saw some girl up there. Where? Up there. He pointed with his finger to the end of the visible trail. She was looking at us, and then she disappeared up the path. I was puzzled. What did she look like? I don't know. Barely saw her. I felt pretty strange after this. After all, it was late August. The weather was cloudy, and there was even a little bit of rain. We rarely saw people during peak hiking days, so it was extremely unlikely he actually saw a person that day. Despite that, Rick wasn't the type to lie for no reason so I figured he really did see someone. We continued walking up the trail. As we neared where he said he saw the girl, we began to pick up on a smell. This smell was faint at first, gradually increasing the closer we got to the bend in the path. The best way I could describe it is a bouquet of flowers. If you ever spent time in a florist shop, you know what I mean. It was heavy and concentrated, like we just walked into a room filled with nothing but roses. Still, though, something about it was off in some way. It was distracting, and it made me want to follow it. Do you smell that? I asked. Yeah. Ricky inhaled deeply through his nose. What is it? I shook my head not bothering to reply, because I really didn't know. We looked around, and despite how strong the smell was, we didn't see anything that could have been responsible for that peculiar odor. Now, the forest along the mountainside is lush and full of life, but it's predominantly trees. There are a few wildflowers, but there's no way the floral aroma should have been this strong. We stopped at the bend in the path to drink from our water bottles, sitting on a large, fallen tree. There weren't any people or anything else out of the ordinary, aside from that strange smell. Eventually, we moved up the path again. After about fifty footfalls, the flower smell seemed to stay the same, more or less, no matter how far we walked. We worked our way through the rest of the hike pretty quickly, and yes, the flowery smell remained constant the entire time. 
We eventually theorized that some rare, extra stinky flower was in bloom on the mountainside, which served as explanation enough. A medium fog seemed to settle over the mountain, which wasn't anything new. As we walked, though, we began to realize something was off. I was the first one to notice. It felt as if I was being hit with a wave of deja vu. Hey, Rick, does that tree look familiar? Ricky looked at me and followed my hand, seeing where I was pointing. Wait, didn't we pass that half an hour ago? Somehow, without being aware of it, we were back at the fallen tree we took a break at before. We followed the path the entire time and we knew it hadn't looped, so it was impossible we were back here. Seriously, what the heck? How did we get here? Rick seemed a little alarmed. I don't know, man. Should we just head back? Rick looked at me for a moment before nodding. I guess so, he whispered. Remember how the fallen tree was right at the peak of the path before it turned? That led us all the way down the hill, and so we should have been able to see approximately where we entered from. When we looked down the trail, though, preparing to head back, what we saw was unnerving. The path went down like it should, but right at the lowest point, where it should have swerved left into the opening of the woods, it went back up the hill again. It was like the entire forest was mirrored somehow. And at the very end of the hill, we could just make out two men standing there, wearing the exact same clothes as us. Dude, do you see that? I was already staring when Ricky frantically pointed towards the other peak, where our duplicates stood. We walked forward a little. What in the world? That's when we noticed that the man who was dressed exactly like Ricky seemed to move further away. Rather quickly, given the circumstances, we were able to comprehend that the people we saw were mirroring our movements, or perhaps we were mirroring theirs. My friend looked at me with his hands on his head. What do we do? I, I don't know, dude. Let's just try to get back. So, without another word, we started descending down the hill. As we did, the other pair of men seemed to go down their hill, and so they faded out of our view, much to our relief. Keep in mind, the smell of flowers was still so potent in the air. We finally got to the low point between the two slopes, and as we did, the rain picked up from a light drizzle to a heavy downpour. Let's hurry it up, I said. Ricky didn't respond. A rather brisk few minutes later, we were atop the hill, where we were once again greeted by the fallen tree. Both in front of us and behind us, the situation was the same. Reality seemed to be mirrored, and in both directions, we could see copies of ourselves sitting atop the hill just like we were. Ricky was starting to panic. 
Trying to be logical, I decided to get out my phone, preparing to document whatever in the world was going on. To my dismay, my device didn't turn on. It was a new, premium smartphone with an almost full battery, yet it was completely unresponsive. The screen just remained black as I pushed the power button. Uh, try yours. Rick got out his phone, and it didn't work either. At this point, the sky was beginning to get dark, and the rain was pouring. It's not working. What the heck do we do, man? I shook my head. I had no idea. That's when we heard a voice. Are you boys lost? The voice was mature and feminine. It was well enunciated but coded in a thick accent. I'm not very good with dialects, but I'd guess it was European. We both turned, looking to the side of the path and into the woods. About ten feet in front of us, seated casually on a stump, was a woman. But she was no ordinary woman. The moment I saw her, I felt as if I was intoxicated. She was sitting, but we could tell she was tall, taller than either of us. She was slim, but very toned. She had fair skin with no visible imperfections, and her hair was short and jet black. I can easily say she was the most beautiful person I'd ever seen. I inexplicably felt magnetized to her. Her outfit, though, that was the weirdest part of all. She wore a dress like one you'd expect to see at a party, and it was accessorized by a large black sun hat. Very strangely, her clothes showed no signs of being wet or weathered at all, despite us being in the middle of a storm. We both gazed at her in awe. She stood up, walking towards us. Well... She strutted, as if on a catwalk. Are you, or are you not? Rick's tongue was completely tied. I managed to stammer out a few words, though. Yeah, yeah we are. As she came close to us, it became suddenly apparent she was the source of the floral smell. Hmm, that isn't any good. She turned away from us. Lost on a mountain, especially in all this fog. That's just a recipe for trouble. That's when we noticed that the fog, which was quite thin before, was suddenly very heavy. We couldn't see ten feet in front of us. I nudged Ricky and whispered, Dude, is that who you saw before? He whispered in reply, Yeah, one hundred percent. She turned back around, looking at us as if waiting for us to say something. She seemed to be evaluating us with her piercing blue eyes. Well, come on then. She waved her hand and began pacing down the mountain. We followed on command. Again, I can't explain it, but the woman was enchanting in a very unnatural way. 
and had left us practically helpless. It was only a few minutes before she stopped. The entire time, though, her dress didn't get any wetter from the rain. It was as if she had an invisible umbrella, dissipating the drops as they fell. You can take it from here, I suppose. She turned around to face us, and as she did, the fog thinned back to regular levels. That's when I realized that we were back at the start of the trail, only a few meters into the woods. The exit and the parking lot were visible. She moved to the side, allowing us to pass. We walked by, still in a trance. Before we exited the woods, though, I turned around. I wanted to thank her, or something. It's hard to explain, but I wanted to get one last look at her. When I turned around, though, she was gone. I didn't see how she could have gotten out of sight. It was like she just disappeared. I stood there, bewildered, searching up the mountain with my eyes and seeing no one. The only movement was raindrops. Ricky grabbed my shoulder. Come on, man. Let's get out of here. Without another word, I followed him back to the SUV and we got in, him in the driver's seat. As we pulled away, though, I took one last glance in the rearview mirror, and just under the glow of the singular street lamp in the parking lot, I could see a silhouette of a woman waving goodbye. We never went back to that park again. That was actually one of our last hikes ever with me and Ricky growing apart due to the void of misunderstanding the incident created. Recently he moved, and we lost touch entirely. I never saw that strange woman again. Upon researching this online, I theorized that she was likely a witch, or some sort of spirit. Whether she created the mirroring effect in the forest and the extreme weather... I'm unsure. Regardless, I feel indebted to her, as she did save us. There's one last thing I'd like to mention, though. Whenever it rains at night, and it does a lot in the interior of British Columbia, I have the same dream. The exact same one, consistently, and I've had it ever since the event. Ricky and I are always on a hike of sorts. It goes normally with nothing weird happening. Whenever we leave, though, I always check the rearview mirror of the car, and I see that woman waving at us. Lost and Scared From Gundam Sandrock I was 16 years old at the time, the date was October 2015. I'd gotten into an argument with my mother, so I figured I'd stay at a friend's place. It must have been around eight, as the sun was almost completely down by then. So my friend, we'll call them Heavy Arms, invited me over and told me to take the woodland path. As I'm walking down the path, I felt uneasy on it. It seemed like the further down I went on the path, 
the more life was absent on it. No birds, deer, squirrels. It was just quiet the entire time, which at that time I thought nothing of it. About three-fifths of the way there to Heavy Arm's house, I hear some kind of screeching mixed with laughter. There was no telling who or what it was from, but it felt as if it was coming from all around me. The hair on my neck began to stand up, and I swear I could feel someone or something's eyes on me. I had reached into my pocket and took out my knife. I turned around, and I looked behind me. The next thing I knew, I smelled what I could only describe as someone's rotting dinner that should have been buried with the hint of burnt nickel. Then I saw this shape. It was an animal of some sort, and it seemed to be in an attack position. Perhaps it was waiting for me, waiting to get a better look. This thing was tall, though, taller than me. The creature was between seven and eight feet tall, and what drew me to it was really its head and eyes, eyes that didn't seem to have any soul behind them. They were just milky white, and the head looked similar to a wolf's skull, all bone. As I began to examine it, remaining vigilant, I watched it mirror my movements. I stopped moving around then, keeping my eyes on it to make sure it didn't move any closer to me now. I saw its arms then. They were unnaturally long and bent in front of its legs. Its skin seemed thin and wrapped tightly around muscle and bone. And then I saw its hands, which were covered in blood. I turned my back to it, panicking and starting to run. That's when I heard the same sound from before. A human screech and laughter at the same time. Maybe I was afraid, but I swear I heard the word run somewhere in there. So I ran with everything I had. I could hear something coming from behind me. Something that didn't seem too troubled to keep up with me. I looked around. I knew that there had to be a secret path that we had taken before to Heavy Arm's house, but I wasn't seeing it now. I ran faster, but that thing matched my speed. I came to a full stop, desperately launching my knife at the creature, only to have it make that laughing sound again, as if that had been funny to it. I ran to my left. There was a clearing of tall grass. I found one of the few trees there and hid under it. I kept my eyes on the opening of the clearing where I'd entered. I watched that creature come looking for me. Now, with a better look... I could see just how old it appeared. Then it screeched again, but this one was different than before. This one sounded like it was underwater or gargling some kind of liquid. But before long, the creature gave up looking for me. At least it seemed to give up. So I waited about twenty to forty minutes out there before I came out of my hiding spot. I wasn't sure where I was now, but I did have a vague idea of the general direction Heavy Arm's house should be. I run and run until I see familiar landmarks. Eventually, I do make it to Heavy Arm's back door. I hammered on it, screaming to be let in, 
Soon the living room light came on from within, and the door unlocked. I ran inside and told my friend to lock it behind me. I told him what happened. Surprisingly, he admitted to me that he had seen something similar before, and that his mom had called a priest to bless the grounds, obviously to no avail so far. To this day, I wonder what on earth I saw that night. Sometimes I wonder why that thing was just playing around with me, like a kid would play with his food. But I'm grateful that I got away. That thing must have been some kind of skinwalker or demon. I got lost in the woods. From Mr. Terrible Directions This happened to me when my pals and I went on a dropping. A dropping is when you are dropped at a place you don't know, and you gotta find your way home while people in cars hunt for you, and when they spot you, you get a point. The person with the least amount of points and makes it to the designated place is the winner. My brother and six of my pals were fooling around, acting stupid as we always did. To which my dad said, Don't you numbskulls have anything better to do? Like what? Well, how about something outside? I chuckled at this, but then Terry suggested, What do you guys think about going on a dropping? That sounded like a great idea, so we all agreed. We made our home the place where we had to end up after being dropped. So my parents dropped us all off. My mom said, Okay, let's see how long it takes you guys to travel 20 miles. They drove off and we all went into different directions. I've always been terrible with directions, so going through the woods probably wasn't the best idea. I walked around for what seemed like hours until I heard the sound of a crying dog. I am an animal lover at heart, so I went looking for it to see what was wrong with this creature. Before long, I stumbled upon a large canine that appeared to be stuck in a bear trap. I wasn't sure if it was a coyote or actually a wolf, but it was definitely quite big. I slowly walked to the trapped wolf. It growled at me, of course, but slowly I got closer and closer. The wolf was beginning to calm down, and I was able to set it free. It looked at me for a moment, then half-walked, half-limped off, and I went my way as well. After what felt like an hour, I accepted that I was in fact lost out here, but if I keep walking in a straight line, I would be able to find my way to a road or something like it. I walked and walked for hours but I was still stuck in the woods. At one point, I began to hear branches breaking from behind me. My heart was starting to pound, and I was getting scared. In my mind, I was imagining a huge bear coming out of the bushes, but that idea faded when I heard a weird type of growl. More like a gurgling, actually. I started to run, which I know isn't the best idea to do when facing a wild animal, and being lost, but fear got the better of me. Not paying enough attention to where I was running, I tripped and fell, hearing the footsteps gaining on me quickly. It was then that I heard barking 
I went to look behind me, and that wolf or coyote I'd saved was barking, barking at what appeared to be my pursuer. I then looked at that creature that had been chasing me. It was extremely skinny with claws, and was now running in the opposite direction. The way it ran was strange, as if it wasn't used to running at all, and the gurgling growl I'd heard came from it as it resounded that noise again from its throat. When the creature was out of sight, the friendly canine stopped barking, and when I stood up, it was right next to me. I began to walk again, albeit a bit nervous with this large canine around me. It kept some distance, but it did stay with me. A few times it growled at seemingly nothing or something that was hidden in the woods, which creeped me out, but I just kept on going. I eventually found a road with a diner, and after a few seconds, I saw that it was the diner my dad often goes to with his colleagues. I was so relieved to see a familiar sight. I turned my gaze on the creature I was sure was a wolf. He was still next to me, and then I heard that gurgling growl again. The wolf took a stance, growling at the creature that was now standing within my sightline. Yellow eyes, pale skin, claws, and extremely skinny figure that kept making that gurgling sound. And the wolf then started barking again, apparently scaring that creature off once more. Or so I thought. After I turned around to go towards the diner, I heard the wolf growling again. When I turned my head, my wolf companion was now fighting for its life against that abomination. I kept running towards the diner, scared for my life. When I was at the door, I looked back, but sadly, I didn't see either of those creatures. I arrived at home last and clearly lost the dropping, but my mom looked at me and said, Well, what happened to you? I explained everything of what happened in the woods that day. My cuts from the fall healed quickly, but I had nightmares about that creature in the woods for weeks. Occasionally, I still do. Every once in a while, when I'm at the diner, I sometimes think I can see a wolf standing on the edge of the woods, just watching. Well, that's all I have for news stories, sadly. But here are a bunch of really cool Lost in the Woods stories from a few years ago that I hope you'll enjoy. I apologize. I'm trying to do as many news stories as possible. So thank you for bearing with me. There's no coming back from this. Submitted by Connor McMeredith. I don't know why I thought it was a good idea. Forgive my brevity, but I was an idiot. I was that guy. The one who thought going off the grid for a week would be easy. Who thought surviving in the woods would be a piece of cake. After being an avid camper for the past three years, I figured it'd be invigorating. A test of the skills I thought I had. My college allowed us a short month-long break, sometime during the fall that year, and I had scheduled a week within that month to lose myself in the nearest national forest. All I would bring with me was a jacket, some clothes, and my phone just in case things got bad. 
What could go wrong? The week finally came. I was well rested after sleeping in the past few days, and I made sure to eat a big, carb-filled meal before I set out. Now, you need to know, I wasn't actually trying to get lost. I usually had a good head about me when it came to backtracking my way out of the woods. Just remember that. After walking about 90 minutes from the side of a trail in the middle of the forest, I was completely alone, and the sounds of people and hikers were far gone. It was comforting, at first. I spent the evening building a triangular shelter between two trees that were close enough together to allow that sort of structure. Next, I found some kindling and made myself a small fire. This took a lot longer than it needed to, and when I was finally figuring out where to get some water, it was hours past dark. This was when the fear set in, the realization of what I was doing. It started at the bottommost part of my neck, a tingling sensation that urged me to turn around to make sure I really was alone. This bothered me quite a bit, mostly because I had no actual idea why I felt that way. I soon stumbled upon a creek, and I knelt down to grab a drink of water. It tasted of bark and dirt. It made me wince a little before I reminded myself that this was what I'd been planning for. Snap. A sudden cracking sound made me jump. In an instant, I was upright again and facing away from the water. The woods were silent. The woods were still. I was alone, yet I felt far from it. Probably just a branch breaking from a tree, I told myself. Nothing to worry about. I memorized the location of the creek, and I set back towards my camp, breaking branches on the trees along the way so as to create a sort of breadcrumb trail. As I walked back, I found that I was much more sensitive to the noises around me than before. Every little sound made my ears twitch. The sounds of fallen leaves, of wind whistling past empty branches. My heart was pounding, and I knew I was afraid. Back at my camp, the fire was beginning to fade. I rekindled it and sat close to my shelter, staring into those flames. My eyes were wide open. I could barely bring myself to even blink. This was the first night, and I was already so creeped out that I didn't want to go to bed. But I forced myself into my shelter anyway. I laid my head down in the cool soil and tried to catch some rest. Something awoke me in the middle of the night. Something... Something had grasped the hold of my shoulder. It had reached into my makeshift dwelling and shook me awake. It frightened me so much that I kept my eyes closed and pretended to still be asleep. I began to hear those footsteps around me. They were only a meter away at all times, circling my shelter. Soon, they stopped next to the fire which I was facing. It was in front of me. Slowly, I opened my eyes 
feeling that I needed to see what or who was out there. At the very least, I should be able to see their legs from beneath the walls of my shelter. But when I opened my eyes, the worst of all my nightmares came true. There was a face shoved into my leafy tint. The white of its eyes were so offset as its skin was as black as the night. That was all I could take in before I was screaming and staggering away from the figure. The moment I had crawled backwards out of my shelter, I saw that whatever had been there was now gone. I was alone once more. As soon as I gathered myself, I threw dirt onto the fire and began to move toward the trail away from these woods. Ninety minutes, I whispered under my breath. That's all it would take to get out of here. This was a mistake, I told myself. I never should have come out here. At this point, I chalked up the face as a dream, hoping it was but a nightmare invading my reality, maybe from the stress. Now that I was leaving, I was flushed with relief. This would all soon be over, if it wasn't over already. I was going to make it out of this, and I wasn't ever going to come back this way again. As I walked quickly through the leaves and undergrowth, my mind was reeling while I tried to ignore my own thoughts. Then I suddenly stopped. All at once I couldn't move, because something was touching me. Something had run its fingers and apparently sharp nails through my hair. I could feel them scraping against my scalp, cold and slow and deliberate. What was happening to me? Was I going crazy? I couldn't turn around. I couldn't will myself to do much more than breathe. But when I heard the whisper, when I heard the wind-like voice in my ear say, Run. I listened. My whole body listened. I ran for an hour straight, going four times the speed compared to when I walked into these woods. Yet, I should have already made it out. I should have already been off the trail I was looking for, getting into my car and driving away, the woods far behind me, instead of all around me. Run. The voice kept coming. From the left, from the right, from the distance and right behind me. It was everywhere, and I was crying as I wondered when the dream would end. When I would wake up on my couch, anxious but, but safe. How had I lost my way? This was something that had never happened before, whether day or night. I'd been in the woods enough to know better. Nothing looked familiar. I was lost, and I wasn't alone. Just as I thought I'd perish out there, I tripped and fell nearly face-first onto gravel. Gravel. I was back, back on the trail. I picked myself up, hands full of rocks and dry dirt. I ran down the trail, and in minutes, I saw my car in front of me, and seconds after that, I was igniting the engine and burning rubber. 
as I stopped only for a second to kick it into drive from reverse, to begin my quick and panicked drive home. For that split second, I saw it, the face in my window, inches from my own. I could see the white eyes on dark as night skin, and I could feel the thing smiling. Time slowed to a crawl. It felt like an eternity. My hand hitting the gear shift, and my foot plowing into the accelerator. But soon, soon I was gone. I was peeling the gravel off of the road, getting back on the highway, getting back to the people and noise and concrete, back home. I didn't dare look back. I'd rather pry off my rearview mirror and throw it on the side of the road than look back. This was my experience. It was the strangest and most terrifying experience in my life. It has scarred me in a way that affects me greatly in my day-to-day -day life. I get chills throughout my days. I feel that tingle in the back of my neck. I feel the same textured cold as I felt when I laid there that night, pretending to sleep as that thing encircled me. I've heard of the disappearances in the woods, and I've always wondered what was taking people, who or what was causing those disappearances. But this was different. This thing wanted me out of its woods. I was in its territory, and it wanted me gone. Number two. No Way Out, submitted by Nikki and Azale. It was a year ago. I was visiting my cousin in the country. She lived very far away, and we rarely saw each other, so we were known to pull some crazy stunts. We were both on the back of a four-wheeler at the time, heading to a small private cemetery just for the fun of it. On the way to the cemetery is a stretch of woods to your left for about half a mile. Something then caught my eye, and I told my cousin to stop. There was an opening in the woods, an opening that hadn't been there before, that was now right in front of us. What do you think that is? I asked. I don't know. It wasn't there before, my cousin said. And we were both perplexed. Confused as to how in the matter of a day, someone made a new path in those woods, one that looked so ancient and well-traveled. Well, should we go in there? That was my next question. I don't know, this feels kind of wrong, my cousin answered. Come on, let's just go check it out real quick. I hopped off the four-wheeler, and my cousin was forced to follow me, although hesitantly. The odd thing about this was that oftentimes my cousin was always the one pulling me into mischief. Usually, she was the strong-headed one, and I was the worried one. But something was pulling me onto that path. Curiosity, maybe, but something told me that I needed to be in there, that I needed to see. I would be lying if I said that there was anything odd as we walked down the path. 
The forest was a bit quieter than a normal forest should have been, but nothing else really stood out. Come on, Abby, there's nothing here. My cousin pleaded. I sighed, as I was still set on exploring this new strange place. All right, I gave in. Now, during our walk into the trail, our very short walk, it had not curved at all, nor had we taken any other direction besides straight. The trail seemed to go on and on. We had just walked in and traveled for a few minutes, but as we tried to walk out, heading straight back the way we came, the trail seemed to never end. The woods became infinitely distant. I even checked my phone and showed that we had been on this path for half an hour now. Faith, check this out. I showed my cousin the time, and her eyes widened. But that's impossible. We've only been in here for a couple of minutes. I know, I agreed. I turned it off, and we kept walking in silence. Several more minutes later, I spoke up, my voice trembling. Faith, I think we're lost. There's no way we didn't go any direction but straight, she said. Now we were both worried. We just kept walking for what seemed like another quarter of an hour. Faith, we're so lost, I said helplessly. That was when she stopped. Without turning towards me, she shushed me. Hush. What, I said. Did you hear that? I hadn't heard anything, so I shrugged my shoulders. Moments later, however... I did hear a branch snap somewhere in the woods. Abby, Abby, someone's following us. It's, it's probably just a fox, Faith, or, or some other animal. My cousin shook her head. Suddenly, to our horror, all around us we began to hear footsteps. Footsteps coming right at us, without so much as a word. Faith broke into a full-fledged run, and I followed her. She screamed, and I booked it after her, but since she was taller than me, she ran a little faster, and soon I was lagging behind. I was terrified, scared that I'd end up running through an endless forest on my own. But no, as if some higher power answered our mental cries, the woods ended, and we were back on the trail and next to the four-wheeler. We hopped on and floored it back home. On the way, I looked at my phone again. It had been 75 minutes since we went into those woods. Somehow, in a matter of minutes, we had lost over an hour of time. It didn't make any sense. We never really talked about the event again, but the next time we went to the cemetery, we kept an eye out for that trail. We were ready to pass it on the way, ready to pretend that we weren't looking at it or acknowledging that it was there, pretending that we weren't afraid to look in its direction. But when we did go back, the trail was gone, as if it had never been there. There were no openings in the woods at all. What happened that day, and where did we go? Number three, the scariest thing that has ever happened to me, submitted by Dave W. 
I'm a professional security contractor. Most of what I do is setting up security for remote, secure locations in North and South America. I'm basically the guy a company will hire to make sure that its employees are safe and whenever the government is not able to get people to a location quickly enough to respond to an issue. For example, when a logging company sends people to work in an area deep in the Amazon, they hire me to make sure illegal loggers, poachers, or other criminals don't come and harm them. Most people don't realize that a lot of illegal loggers are armed, and sometimes they're very aggressive, especially when they might believe they're going to get caught. A few years ago, I got hired to do exactly this. We were very deep in the Amazon, and the company I was working for was clearing an area to be used as a landing site for helicopters, which was how this particular company delivered basic supplies like food, water, and equipment to its employees. This area would become the base camp for the employees. The first day, I went with one of the senior employees to walk in a broad circle around the camp, discussing things like setting up remote cameras in certain locations, where to station guards in certain places the employees would have to avoid for their safety. As we were walking, we noticed strips of red fabric on some of the trees near what was to be our camp. This was alarming, because illegal loggers often mark trees like this so that they don't get lost. There were no other legitimate logging operations in the area at the time. The guy I was with wanted me to remove them, but I told him no, that it could be dangerous. You don't want to provoke anyone else who might be out there. The next day, I went back to the area where the marked trees were to investigate a bit further. An area of the ground had a rectangular hole in it. It was about six feet wide and a few feet deep. Nearby, I saw a camouflage net and some tent pegs that had been used to cover it the day before. Someone had hid something in the ground there, and I hadn't noticed it earlier. I looked down into the hole to see that it was nearly full of old backpacks. They weren't all hiking bags or rucksacks like you would expect. Some were children's school bags, some fanny packs like a tourist would wear. Many of them had names in English on them. They were full of personal belongings, such as clothes and trinkets that you would buy as souvenirs, though there were no towns or cities nearby. I took pictures of this and immediately reported it back to base camp. I set up a trap camera looking over the cache of old bags, and then I left. When I got back, I got on my satellite phone and reported this to the local government, who promised to send someone to investigate. They would be there in a few days, as the area was not cleared for the helicopters yet, and would not be for at least a week or two. That night, we were all on full alert. Guards worked 12-hour shifts, and no one was allowed to leave the camp for safety. The loggers worked all throughout the night, and we had no problems. The next day, I went to retrieve the trap camera. All the backpacks were gone. My camera had been pulled from its place and smashed into little bits onto the ground. What the... 
I said, and then I heard the running coming in my direction. It was clearly multiple people, though I couldn't see them through the vegetation. I was armed and ready to defend myself, but I realized I could not run back to the camp, as then I would risk the camp being discovered by these people. I got into cover, and I took aim. My mind was racing, my heart pounding, knowing I was outnumbered, and that I probably wouldn't make it out alive if they saw me. I began to pray, hoping that I would win this game of hide-and-seek. Suddenly, a man with a machete burst out of the bushes right in front of me. He stared right at me. He took a slow step towards me, but when he saw that I was aiming at him, he smiled and said in plain English, Soon, then backed into the bushes. I waited there for an hour, and I didn't hear anything else. Making sure I wasn't followed, I steadily went back to camp, reported again what had happened. We decided it was time to abandon the project here, and we all hiked to the nearest clearing, eight miles away. There we were picked up by helicopters. We left all the equipment behind. A week later, I returned with a large group of police officers. All of our equipment had been stolen or vandalized. The bags were gone. The worst part was that inside of my tent, a large machete had been staked into a picture of my wife. The guy knew where I slept. They must have been watching our camp the whole time. It turned out, this was an active group of the worst kind. People involved in the disappearances of those who were lost in the woods, those who couldn't find their way back, and those who stepped a little too far beyond the tree line. All those backpacks that I saw in that hole, they all used to belong to a person, a person who made one mistake, got lost in these dense forests, and was never seen or heard from again. Number 4. Lost in the Woods Submitted by Kai About a year ago, my family lived in a house basically surrounded by woods and wildlife. I was used to my surroundings, and I thought I knew the woods there like the back of my hands. I often went on hikes out there, daring myself to go further each time. Well, on a certain occasion, I went a little too far, and I soon found myself lost. Usually, my backup was to pull out my phone, and if I really was lost, I could use it as a GPS to find my way back. But this time, my phone had no reception. I'd really gone far, too far. I wandered around in the woods, and the sun was beginning to set. So I decided to find somewhere as a shelter, and somewhere I could stay overnight. I stumbled upon a den, and I sat at the opening, a small cave with a mouth that overlooked the forest. I sat there wondering. I'd been gone so long. Had my family called the authorities already, sent out a search party to look for me? How embarrassing. Lost around my own home. And Lord knows how much more lost I've gotten since I couldn't find my way with the GPS. 
I sat there for a while with nothing to do. It was warm still and there was no need for a fire with that temperature. So I grew bored pretty fast. I turned around and decided to explore further in the cave. About a minute in, I found something strange. There was an old wooden chair scooted partially out from under an old wooden table. They looked ancient, like nobody had used it in a while. They looked weathered beyond their ages. It was definitely weird that someone might be in here hanging out at certain times, but I decided to keep exploring. Only thirty seconds later, thirty seconds past that table, I found an odd wooden chest. The chest was maybe half my size, and I was a grown man, so it was pretty big. Curiously, just as any person would, I decided to open it just to see inside. Who knows what could be in there, maybe some treasures of some untold variety. As I slowly opened it, the creaking sounds it made scared me. If there was someone out there, someone I didn't want to run into, these creaking sounds would give away my position. I felt like I was in trouble. With every creaking inch, I knew something was hearing me. Something knew I was there. I shook off my paranoia and just opened it. When I saw what was inside, my heart seemed to stop and my stomach sank. Dozens of shoes, all youth and children's sizes. Some new, some old, some clean, some not. They came in every shape and size, but all children's sizes. What was this doing here? Why was it here? Before I could freak out or blurt anything in surprise, I heard someone coming in the distance. I threw myself in the chest, struggling to shut it as there were so many shoes inside already. Plus, the smell wasn't too great. Sure enough, I was finally able to close the lid. Then I covered my mouth, tried not to breathe too loud, and I sat there listening. Approaching quickly were the sounds of two sets of different footsteps, both much heavier than my own. And then there was another sound, like someone grunting under a cloth or pillow. That's how I could describe it at the time. Suddenly, there was a thud coming from the entrance of the cave, followed by a loud moan. Yeah, just leave him here, said a voice. All right, now let's get going. Then the two sets of footsteps, now lighter, began to walk away. Several minutes after their sounds had faded, I finally willed myself out of that chest, every little noise echoing in that cave. I stumbled slowly to the edge of the den watching each and every one of my steps so as to not hit a pebble that would give away my presence. There on the ground was a boy with duct tape over his mouth, and his feet were tied together. He began to mumble, as if pleading me for help. I started to untie his shoes, but then I faced him and looked him in the eye. Adrenaline pumped through me, and I put my finger over my mouth. You have to stay quiet, okay? can't say a word when I take off this duct tape. If you want to live through this, stay silent. He nodded quickly and frantically. I threw off the rope that remained, and I steadily peeled off the duct tape. 
though I couldn't save him from the sting of it. Together, without a word, we began our journey through the woods, and I kept my eyes out, ready to see those men at any time. Luckily, we never stumbled upon them. By early morning, we made it out of the woods, and I was right. My family had called in a search party. There were police cars there and people with flashlights scanning the surrounding woods. I slowly made my way cautiously up to one of the searching officers, and I told him everything. I pointed him in the direction of that den, and I told him everything that we had found. Now that I was safe, and they had someone who had been lost in custody, they went back into the woods behind us and searched for the den. We took the boy inside, made him some hot soup and tea, and tried to keep him comfortable though mostly he just sat in silence, too afraid to speak, too in shock to eat. Hours later, the police came back to our house, and they had something to tell us. This was the most worrisome part of all. They did find the den, but there was no trace of the wood chair, the wood table, the wooden chest, let alone any shoes. But, they said... There was an obvious sign of someone clearing out the place, signs that someone had left in quite the hurry. So now we know, now we get to live with the thought that those men are still out there. They're still at large, still searching for the next set of shoes to add to their collection. Our Experience at Donkey Lady Bridge from the Slytherin Princess. I grew up in San Antonio. Growing up, we always heard stories about the Alamo, the Minger Hotel, the haunted train tracks, and Donkey Lady Bridge. The legend we were told as kids was that a family had lived in the area of the bridge, until one day the husband had gotten angry and set fire to their home, killing himself and his two children, and horribly disfiguring his wife. Supposedly, her fingers and hands had melted into the shape of hooves, and her face melted into an elongated shape, like that of a horse or donkey. We were not told if that had killed her or not, but we were told that she haunted the area surrounding the bridge. Fast forward to after I graduated high school, I was an edgy, thrill-seeking teenager, so my friends and I all decided to go out to the bridge. It is said that if you park your car and turn it off, then either flash your lights or honk three times, then remain silent. You start to hear things. Well, we tried that, and we did. We began to hear what sounded like hooves hitting pavement. Then it escalated to what sounded like a mix of a lady and a donkey screaming in pain. After this, things went silent, and my friend Jay decided she wanted to go look around, much to the disagreement and dismay of the rest of us. But we weren't just going to let her go alone, after what we heard. Donkey Lady Bridge is joined by the Medina River Park and hiking trails, we decided to start walking one of those trails, which we later learned was a very big mistake. As we got further along the trail, we got deeper into the woods that surrounded it. I've always been the type to sense when things are going to go wrong, 
And at this point in time, I had that feeling along with the feeling of being followed and watched. We decided to stop there, then begin to make our way back to the car before it got too late. And that's when we heard the hooves again and the screaming. It was coming from the direction the car was in, the direction we needed to head towards. We then heard rustling in the bushes next to us. Jay was the first to scream, saying she had seen eyes in the bushes, and they were getting closer. We started walking, more like running, to the car. I'm asthmatic, so I can't run for too long without having to take breaks. I soon fell behind without anyone realizing, and I had to walk the rest of the way to the car alone. The sounds of hooves and heavy breathing following close behind me. Just when you think our experience is over, you, my friend, would be mistaken. We all got back into the car, only to find that it would not start. And then the screaming erupted again, followed by the sounds of hooves running on pavement. The next set of events are what make me remember this story so well. We had locked the doors and thanked the gods we had rolled the windows up before we left it. We sat there in our own silence, listening to screams and hooves getting closer and closer to the car, and then it all stopped. At least we thought it did, but the car still would not start. The next thing I remember is something big smashing into the side of our car, the side that was facing the bridge. Whatever it was, it hit the side of the car a couple of times before things went quiet again. At this point, all the girls are crying, and the guys are cussing under their breath, while the owner of the car is trying desperately to get it started. Thinking back, I wish it hadn't started, because when the car suddenly came on, we saw it, or her. The car had started, which caused the headlights to turn on as well, and standing in the beams of those lights in front of the car was this almost mist-like figure with glowing white eyes. Before the owner of the car could kick it into drive, the mist figure charged at the car and jumped onto the hood before disappearing. We drove as fast as we legally could all the way back to my house, waiting until morning to even look at the car. We continued to go back to Donkey Lady Bridge, but why were we attacked? Was it because we didn't honk our horn or flash our lights, or maybe she torments everyone and just didn't torment us enough? I'll never know, because we never saw that thing again. The Shadow of Stearns Park From Hiram It was the summer of the year 2000. My family moved into a rural area that was just starting to sprout developments. We lived among a few horse farms and ranches that bordered a brand new gated community. The back wall of it ran along the front of ours and our neighbor's property. So it was an odd mix of country folk and urbanites. Two properties over, a park had been built with a playground, hockey rink, picnic shelters, restrooms, and a quarter mile of paved jogging path 
that wound through the tree line of a dense stand of woods, which itself ran along the back border of the park. There was a massive field between the playground and tree line, where we could run around. There was also a gate built into the back wall of the subdivision that would allow those kids to come play at the park. Things were always a little spooky around here. The farms and ranches had been there since the 18th and 19th centuries, and it was an active area during the Seminole Wars in Florida. You'd see things in the tree line sometimes, or you would feel something otherworldly pressing on your consciousness even during the day if you wandered too deep into those woods. The real troubles didn't start until the grave was found. One of the local boys that lived up the dirt road from us had wandered too deep into the woods behind the park. He came to an old barbed wire fence, so he jumped it and found the ruins of a barn hidden in a tree-ringed clearing that had nearly been swallowed by undergrowth. It was there that the grave of a lost settler was found. This man had sent his family to a nearby fort when the threat of Seminole raiding parties loomed. He and the other men fought back, but were slaughtered. The men who buried him were killed, so the location of his grave marker was lost for over a century. The finding of the grave was a big enough deal to make the local papers, with a photo of the headstone and the boy who found it published on the front pages. It wasn't long before the grave was desecrated by local vandals, and things escalated. First came the snakes. We went from seeing a couple of black racers and rat snakes a year to half a dozen venomous cottonmouths in a month. Then the crows came, screaming every morning from their murders, high up in the trees or on the power lines. It wasn't just them animals. The entire mood of the area seemed to shift. An early chill came in September, and we started having heavy mist almost every night and morning that would blanket everything. The mist would hang onto the tree line as the sun burned it away, lasting nearly until noon, obscuring the woods within its embrace. Sometimes I would see things moving in the mist, usually the silhouette of a large, dog-like thing. In my eleven-year-old mind, it was large enough to be a wolf. It would still from tree to tree, its large head low to the ground as though sniffing for a scent. Weeks passed, and the foreboding grew. It got to a point where kids stopped playing at the park altogether. My cousins and their family lived with us at the time. We had a double-wide trailer being placed on the back of our acreage for them and they were living in the main house until it was done being hooked up to power, water, and septic. One night, the eldest cousin, who shared a room with my older brother, got fed up with my brother staying up late to play his new PS1, so he decided to go to sleep in the trailer. They were pretty much moved in, but there was still no power or water hooked up. He gathered his pillows and blankets and made the trip through the darkness to the back of the acre, he was startled by a black cat that darted from under one of our sheds and ran across his path. He was spooked, but decided to keep going. He made it to the trailer and locked it behind him, then made his way to what would be his shared room. He climbed into the top bunk and settled in. A few minutes later, 
he heard slow and heavy footsteps heading towards his room at the end of the trailer. As they neared, he pulled his blanket over his head and was peeking from under it. He said he could see the top of the door of the room. It swung open, and he said he could feel something lean into the room. After a minute or two, this presence left, and he eventually fell asleep. A few weeks after that, my parents had some church friends over for a coffee and cake. Two girls came with them, and they really wanted to go play manhunt at the park. I didn't want to go, but I was overruled by the older kids, and off we went with flashlights. I was uneasy at first, but we made the woods out of bounds, and that made me feel a bit better. We played a few rounds, and I began having a lot of fun. The moon was out full and bright. During the final round, I was hiding under a picnic table, facing the expansive field and tree line. I glanced around, and I spotted a dark mass crouched on the jogging path, right where it entered a small stand of pine trees. The mist was already setting in, so it was obscured. I continued to stare at it when it stood up. I don't know if it was the fear I felt, but as I remember it, it was nearly half as tall as the pine trees it stood among, which at the time would be nearly seven feet. I jumped as one of the girls screamed from nearby. My brother and cousins came running to see what happened, but it turned out she had been tagged and was being dramatic. I looked back to the tree line just in time to see the tall thing enter the woods. I told them about what I saw and they dismissed it as one of the people from the neighborhood. We decided to end the round and sit down in the field next to the hockey rink, which was fenced in with a tall chain-link fence to keep errant pucks or balls from injuring non-players. We sat in a semicircle with our back to the woods. My older cousin faced us and began telling ghost stories, the one I mentioned earlier in the trailer. Halfway through the story, he just freezes, and stares over our heads, then jumps up and takes off without a word. We all look back and see a seven-foot-tall shadow thing or man coming towards us out of the mist and shrouded woods. I say shadow because it was close enough that we would have been able to make out facial features and clothing if it were an actual person. But there were no features. It was just black, tall, and menacing. We all got up and sprinted after my cousin into the hockey rink. We formed a circle with our backs to one another and all stared into the growing mist. The shadow thing was gone. One of the girls was sobbing while the rest of us panted in fear. We were there for maybe ten minutes before any of us could muster the will to move or speak, and we realized we had left our flashlights in the middle of the field. We decided to stay in a circle and walk the quarter mile back to our house that way. We made it halfway through the park when one of the girls broke the circle and ran. We all screamed and did the same, sprinting down the dirt road until we made it back to the house, where we told our parents what happened. The three dads went back to the park, armed and cautious, thinking it was a kid or an adult from the community playing a prank on us 11- to 14-year-olds. 
They came back maybe forty-five minutes later, with our flashlights, along with puzzled looks on their faces. They had not found anyone, but all five of our flashlights were dead. We moved to a different city not long after, but that shadow has stayed in my memory and dreams for the last twenty-two years. I don't know if it was the spirit of the murdered settler, or one of the Seminole that had died there, too. All I know is that it was not a person. Encounters with an Unknown Creature From Lashonda from the Catskills My family and I were very happy to be living atop the tallest of the Catskill Mountains on 1,000 acres of nearly untouched forest. Living where we did, we understood completely that we were guests, and this land belonged fully to the wildlife that lived there. We have seen and interacted with an incredible array of animals, from the usual black bears and deer, to an actual mountain lion and two moose. As beautiful as they all are, it's another creature altogether that is burned into our memories. It was a typical fall evening, and that time of day my brother calls blue time, a bit after sundown. It's dark but still lit enough to not need a flashlight in order to see. We were all watching television together, as we did most evenings, and like usual, our cat and dog were curled up on the rug at our feet, sleeping. Suddenly, both the cat and dog jumped up startled, but none of us had heard a thing. Then they both began behaving very strangely. The cat was hissing and puffed up looking towards the window. My dog was also looking towards the window and pacing, whimpering, and then he flattened himself to the floor, terrified. Then he began to urinate. This was absolutely out of the norm for our dog. He weighs 120 pounds and wrestles with black bears. He was not easily frightened. My children ran to me and huddled against me, frightened themselves. But at what, we did not know. My little brother on the precipice of manhood wanted to grab our shotgun and go out to investigate, but of course I could not let him. I assured everyone that it was probably a coyote or fox. I put on my shoes to go take a look. I thought it was strange the way the animals were behaving, but I truly believed it was just an animal, so I wasn't afraid. I was about to find out I was half right. It was an animal, but I should have been afraid. I stepped outside and looked around. As I'd mentioned, it was still light enough out that I didn't need a flashlight. But I didn't see anything at first. I listened and heard nothing. So I decided to go to my jeep and grab a shawl that I left in the back. Just as I stepped behind the jeep and reached out to open it, I saw it. It had been crouched down near the front passenger side tire, and it stood up just as I got to the back of the jeep. It was so tall. The rooftop of the jeep was level with its diaphragm. From what I could see, it was very muscular, but thin. It had pale colored flesh, dark hollow eyes, and a very thin slit for a mouth. 
it was also hairless. I always thought when people would say that they froze with fear, they were simply being descriptive. I learned that day they were being quite literal. I could not move a single bit, and my life depended on it. It felt like an eternity that I was frozen, but realistically it was probably a few seconds. It just stared at me, also unmoving. Unfortunately, it found its motor skills first, and for some reason, it had turned to walk around the front of the jeep to come towards me. It only took three very graceful steps, and it was already at the front driver's side tire. It was still looking at me. It was at that second I could finally move. I spun around, and I ran as fast as I could from my front door. I remember the entire time I was running. I was waiting to feel claws shredding through the skin of my back. Thankfully, that didn't happen. When I came flying through the front door, my brother was standing there. I didn't know why at that second, but he saw me and cried out, Oh, sissy! And he reached out for me. When I came to, I was on the floor. I had fainted. Apparently all the color was drained from my face when I came in, and I was violently trembling. I told my children I had just been surprised by a bear, and everything was fine. They accepted that. My brother knew me better, though, and so I had to tell him the truth, privately. We all slept in the same room for a while after that, including the gun. I have no idea what it was. All I can say is that in all of my experience with nature and animals, and I have a lot, I've never seen anything like it. We've had two more encounters with this creature since then. One of the times it made an appearance during a family barbecue, so it is obviously not shy, since there were fifteen of us there that day. But that is a story for another time. My Encounter with the Bunyip From Jigsaw Voorhees I haven't told this story to a lot of people, but I need to get it off my chest. I'm from Australia, and we have something from our folklore called a bunyip. My grandparents always told me not to go to the billabong after dark, because a bunyip lived there. Now, there's something you should know about me. I'm not a superstitious guy, so I never believed in them. Fast forward a few years and I'm still recovering from what happened. There was a girl I liked, named Riley, that always wanted to go to the billabong, where the bunyip supposedly lived. I told her that I lived near it, and it was a mile from where I lived. So later that day, we went to the billabong together to go camping. When we got there, it felt wrong. The only way I could describe it is that feeling where you know something is going to happen but you don't know when or what it is. I have no idea how long we were there when Riley said that we should go swimming in the billabong. Me being the stupid teenager I was, I wanted to impress her. So we changed into our bathing suits and dove in. After a few minutes of splashing around, Riley said that she felt something brush up against her leg. 
I told her it was probably a fish, and she was fine. But then the same thing happened again. She began to get scared. She started to swim back to shore. Then something happened that I'll never forget, not till the day I die. I saw this reddish-brown claw-like hand reach around Riley's leg, digging its nails into her. She screamed, most likely from pain and shock, as the thing pulled her underwater. I froze. I didn't know what to do, so I just swam to the spot where the creature took her. And speak of the devil, the thing popped its ugly head out of the billabong. The only way I know to describe it is a deformed Jar Jar Binks with horns and fangs coming out of its mouth. It still had Riley in its clawed hand as it was coming towards me now. I looked for anything at all to defend myself with. I found a jagged rock lying near the bank of the billabong. I grabbed it, and I did the only thing I could do in that situation. I lunged and stabbed it in the hand it had Riley in. It let out a cry that sounded like a slow and deep riverboat horn. It dove under the water, then swam away. But as it did, it looked like it shot me an evil look. I dragged Riley to shore, the adrenaline still coursing through my body. I hadn't known she was crying, but I didn't have time to care. All I wanted to do was get her out of that billabong into the safety of dry land. We made it to my house, and I saw that she was limping, so I asked her what was wrong. She sniffled as she lifted up the blanket I gave her. She had a deep gash in her leg that looked like claw marks. My mom allowed her to spend the night. It was a Friday, and she slept on the couch. It's been years, but every time I pass by that billabong, I still feel uneasy whenever I think about that night. The Ghost in My Woods From Arrow This happened on May 1st, a day after my birthday. I was with my friends Ian and Ethan. We usually just hang out for my birthday, but I thought it'd be a fun idea to go out to the woods to mess around with some new guns I got for my birthday. All three of us headed out into the woods, making sure we had flashlights. By then, it was around 7.30 p.m., so it'd be getting dark pretty soon. We brought my dog, Obi, with us. We soon made it to the part of my woods that we use for a makeshift shooting range. We got the guns out and began shooting down the bowling pins that were set up. Just after we emptied the first magazine, we started reloading. While doing so, I heard a faint voice saying, Stop it! I turned to my friends and said, uh, Stop what? They both looked at me like I was going crazy. I explained that I had heard a voice and told them what it said. They both had no clue what I was talking about. I pushed it out of my mind and thought it was just my head playing tricks on me. We started shooting again for about an hour as the sun began to fade so I thought it would be a good idea to start heading back home. It would take half an hour depending on how fast the walk was. 
As we began walking down the path, I again heard a strange voice. This time it said, Get out. I stopped dead in my tracks as Ian and Ethan continued for a couple of feet before noticing me and Obi were stopped in the middle of the path. Obi had his ears slanted and the hair on his back was straight up. He was in his attack position. I then knew I wasn't the only one who heard the voice. Just then, it felt as if someone shoved me. I fell over, dropping my flashlight. I then felt a hand trying to pick me up, as I looked up at Ian, trying to help me up with a look of terror in his eyes. As I got back to my feet, I told them to start running, as we were not alone out here. We all took off into the night. I could see the house getting bigger. Closer, I knew we were almost there. When suddenly, Obi started to bark at seemingly nothing. I picked him up as he wouldn't move, as if he'd rather fight or protect us than run. When I grabbed Obi, I heard something else. Move! move. It was Ethan trying to warn me. He saw that a branch was falling and was going to land on me. I ran out of the way with Obi in my arms as we finally made it back to my house. We ran in and upstairs, slamming each door shut as we went through it, locking them. I peered out of my windows, as I had two windows, one on the side and one that pointed towards those woods. I swear, then, I saw a white figure disappear into the night. I regret to say... That would not be the last time I went into those woods. The Rest Stop That Never Was From Midnight Cowboy Are you familiar with Nevada? It's one of those less iconic states due in part to the huge stretches of desert and otherwise barren land between the urban developments. I'm not a resident, but I was traveling through it, returning to my place in Oregon. I was by myself at the time, driving up the US-95. It was around eight or nine at night, and it was October, so the sky was almost entirely dark by then. I never had an issue with driving at night. I don't scare too easily, and I enjoyed the peace and quiet. Being as young as I was, I didn't ration my gas too well. I knew the next rest stop must have been 15 or 20 miles down the road, and my tank was nearing empty. That's why I thought it was odd, as I saw the lights and architecture of a gas station coming into view. As I neared it, I got a better look at it. It was unbranded probably independent as so many rest stops are down here. The store was well lit, and it had a rectangular sign right out front that read only 24-7. I remember thinking how lucky I was, and being confused as to why I didn't see it on the map prior to the trip. Without much more thought, I entered the store. So, a few things struck me as off about it. It was a normal gas station and notably very clean inside. However, all the food items had legacy packaging. For example, Doritos. Remember when they had the old 70 styles bags that had a white upper half, 
All the bags in the store looked like that. It seemed like all the other snacks had older packaging too, and when I went over to the cooler to grab a water, so did all the drinks. To my dismay, I didn't see any water at all, only sodas and some milks. Begrudgingly, I grabbed a cola, which also had the nostalgic retro design. Carrying my beverage up to the counter, I was greeted by an older woman. I don't remember much about her, aside from the fact that she was entirely bald. She had a plastic rose pinned into her shirt. She looked at me questioningly as I put my drink on the table. She rung it up manually in her very outdated-looking register. Interestingly, I didn't see a card reader anywhere on the table. The register then displayed 10 cents in analog lettering. I was surprised as to how cheap the drink was, but didn't bother questioning her. Opening my wallet, I pulled out a $50 bill before putting it on the counter. Put the rest on pump one, please, I said with a smile. She picked up the bill, examining it under the light as if it was fake, before slowly placing it into the register. She said nothing more, only stared, as I picked up my soda and headed back outside. After figuring out the very weird pump design, I was able to fill up my car. I thought she added more than I paid for as the gas poured for a long time. Checking the readout in the car, it said the tank was nearly full, so I stopped pumping despite the gauge indicating I had a lot more gas left. Whatever, I thought. Guess the next person who would stop might get a free fill-up. I turned on my vehicle and pulled back onto the road. I must have been driving for five minutes when I randomly glanced back at my tank level. I was somehow empty again. I was confused and figured I must have misread the gas indicator as I was pumping my fuel, so I left, thinking my car was full when it wasn't. I made a U-turn heading back down the road in search of this rest stop I visited. After reaching the area where I thought it'd be, I was puzzled. There were no visible lights anywhere. I turned my high beams on, trying to get a better look around me, and that's when I saw it, revealed by a partially shattered window reflecting my car light back at me. I found the rest stop, or rather, what used to be the rest stop. Directly to my left was the gas station, but it wasn't the gas station I visited. This one was decrepit. The gas pumps were long gone, with only the overhang they were fixated to still remaining. The building itself had visible holes in the foundation, with all the windows smashed, some even missing entirely. The main front windows had wood boarded over them. As I looked at the place, my chest tightened. Something was very wrong here. I parked my car in front of the doors, leaving my lights on and getting out. As I got close, the building looked even worse. It was obviously ancient, and it probably hadn't seen a customer in decades. I approached the door and pulled on the rusted handle. It was locked. I tried the left side and the door slowly opened, with a hair-splitting creak. Instinctively, I reached towards the light panel I remembered seeing on my way out. To my surprise, it was still there, confirming this was, in fact the same building. Only one light, the one directly above the register, flickered on with an audible buzzing sound. The single bulb cast a pale yellow around the room, 
In front of me lay scattered and trampled bags, containing some of the snacks I saw before in 1970s-era packaging. The coolers and most of the shelves were gone. The counter, though, was still intact, as was the register. I approached it, cautiously, not really knowing what to expect. Under the light, it was obvious a thick layer of dust covered everything, all except for one small item. A scarlet-red plastic rose sat in the exact middle of the counter, oriented so that the flower pointed away from me. I picked it up, realizing it was the same piece the woman working the register had been wearing as an accessory. As I touched it, I was overcome with a very strong feeling. It's hard to explain, but it's like when you listen to a masterfully composed, sad piece of music, and you're overcome with emotion. All the emotion the author poured into the song. This is what I felt as I touched the toy flower. I then thought I heard whispering, my instincts telling me to turn around, and I did. Of course, I saw nothing and no one. Strangely, though, the previously rusted door was swinging back and forth, as if someone had just bolted through it. After that, I left the gas station. Somehow, on my drive, my fuel gauge never got any lower than it was, and I was able to make it to the next real rest stop without any issues. To this day, I still can't wrap my head around the ordeal. I've never told anyone I know about it. I tried rationalizing it as a dream, but I know for a fact I was awake. It's hard to deny, especially because I still have the plastic rose. I took it from that counter, and I pinned it on my rearview mirror. Looking at it gives me an odd sense of peace or memorial. Again, it's hard to explain. I tried doing some research, but couldn't find any documentation about the strange rest stop online. I doubt I'll ever know for sure what happened, or who that woman was, but I suppose some things are better left to time. Good luck to any nighttime drivers out there, and stay safe. Mr. Watcher, from Delta Quadrant 33 my story begins driving down a long, straight road. I'm not going to specify where, for privacy, but I will say it was in the American Midwest. I was nearing where I was supposed to settle for the night. It was a rest stop for rig drivers and such. I knew I could park there to get some sleep in the cabin of my truck. I was still a few miles out when I came across a car. It was in the middle of the lane and it had all of its doors open, including the trunk. Now, the sun was setting. It wasn't too dark to see, but as I neared the vehicle, I could tell there was nobody in it. It was a real small car, a Mini Cooper, but it was a new year and looked clean. Pulling over, I got out to take a better look. As I thought before, nobody was inside. I could still see quite well into the desert surrounding the road. I took a big look around. I didn't see anyone, so who the heck left their car out here? I debated calling the cops, but decided not to, seeing as whoever the driver was must have been close by. I was getting back into my pickup when I first laid eyes on it. It looked like a scarecrow. Sort of. 
It was real tall, stocky. It had on a round hat with a big brim, and it hung as still as stone, just looking in my direction from maybe 200 yards off the road. From where I was, I could only see the silhouette, but still it made me feel off. I doubted the area I was in never used to be farmland, so why was a scarecrow out here? I turned my engine back on and picked up out of there. Something to note, when I tried making out the scarecrow in my rearview mirror as I pulled away, it almost seemed closer to the road than it was before. Thinking it was just because of my mirror, I went down the road, not paying attention to it anymore. So I rolled into the rest stop around ten o'clock. I parked my truck in the lot. There weren't many other vehicles there, only one other car, some real old trashy-looking sedan. And then there were two big rigs. Seeing as it was still open, I went into the diner, sitting down at the counter. It was a pretty nice place, considering it was in the middle of nowhere. I think I ordered soup and a sandwich, or something like that. I was the only one in the place, and the waitress was making conversation with me. Eventually, I mentioned the car I saw a few miles previous that had its hazard lights on. She seemed indifferent at first. Then I brought up the scarecrow, and she stiffened up. She focused, now looking me dead in the eye. A scarecrow, yeah? She talked quieter than she did before. What it looked like? Pretty normal, big old farmer hat, I replied. She just sort of looked at me after that. Finally, she spoke again. Was it looking at you? I thought for a moment, remembering how the scarecrow was oriented towards me from where I saw it. I mean, yeah, I guess. She looked at me solemnly, before handing me my food and vanishing into the kitchen. I won't lie, I was pretty freaked out by that. I thought about it while I ate. It's not like a scarecrow could have been watching me after all. They're inanimate. But the more I thought, the more scared I got. From where I saw it the first time, it was maybe an easy 25 degrees off axis with the road. But when I saw it next, in my truck's mirror, it was still facing directly towards me. So it must have been almost 45 degrees at that point. It seemed impossible. And I couldn't help but think about the abandoned car, too. It was just unsettling. So I had a little trouble getting to sleep that night. It wasn't noisy or anything, in fact, no other vehicles rolled in at all. Eventually, I managed to drift off, sleeping okay for the most part. I got up around 8 in the morning. After doing my minimal morning routine, I decided to head into the same diner to grab some breakfast. There were more people there than there was before, probably five or six other customers. When I walked in, it was like a pariah, though. Everyone went quiet stopping their eating and their conversations to look at me. It was weird as heck, looking around the room and seeing everyone stare back at you. Slowly, I took a seat at the counter. I was four stools away from the closest guy, but as soon as I sat down, he grabbed his paper and headed out the door, leaving his partially eaten food on the table. A different waitress from last night came up to me, just staring with her notepad in hand. I asked for scrambled eggs, toast, and coffee, but she didn't say anything, 
Rather, she just eyed me weird. I did get my food a little while later, and it tasted fine. So I finished up in that awfully quiet diner, leaving a pretty generous tip for the girl considering the service. When I headed out the door, though, I freaked. Directly in front of me, but way back on the other side of the big road, was the scarecrow. In the daylight, I could make it out well. It was really tall, maybe around six or seven feet. It was made of hay and draped in a black and gray shirt and dark pants. Its hat was real strange. It was nice looking, yeah. Obviously expensive. But vintage, too. Made out of premium leather. I knew it was the same scarecrow from before because of how big the hat was. I just stared in awe. How the heck did it get there? So I was pretty much done at that rest stop, and the scarecrow wasn't making me want to stick around any longer. Still eyeing it, I hopped in my truck. To my relief, the engine turned over fine, and I pulled out of the place. Getting back onto the road, I came probably within twenty feet of the scarecrow. I looked at it, and it just sort of sat there, unsuspectingly. Down the road I went, but guess what I saw five minutes later? Another scarecrow. I took a double take out my window when I saw it coming up, but sure as heck it was really there. I pulled over, getting out of my truck. Where I was, all that was around was desert, yet that scarecrow stood right in the middle of it, a few yards from the road. I looked at it. It was the exact same one as the one I saw before, with that textured old leather hat, dark clothes, and the same awful height. Same thin body. I know what you're thinking. Maybe someone used to own a farm around here. Maybe they used a few of the same-looking scarecrows. But it wasn't like that. From the orientation of the hat and its pose, I knew it was the exact same one. It was simply too perfect. I approached the thing, trying to rationally sort out what was going on. Its eyes I could see well. They were these thick black buttons like three inches in diameter. Looking at it, though, I began to think how silly it was to be afraid of a scarecrow. It's not like it could do anything to me, right? I walked up to it. Kind of childlike, I took off its hat, revealing a pointy straw head. I laughed, again cursing myself for being childish. The hat itself was really nice, actually. It had that feeling of vintage leather. I played with it a bit. On the underside, it had a little logo etched into it. It read, Mr. Watcher. Not any brand I'd ever heard of before. Being satisfied with my dissection of the scarecrow, I went to slap its hat back on. Only, I couldn't. Because it was gone. The scarecrow that was just in front of me a minute ago was now missing. What the heck? I said aloud. I looked around. My truck was still there. Everything seemed normal. Yeah. So where the heck did the scarecrow go? Its hat was still in my hands. After that, I decided I'd had enough. I packed it back in my truck, dropping the hat in the seat next to me. I didn't bother trying to explain to myself what happened. I just wanted to leave. About ten minutes of seventy miles per hour later, I was feeling okay again. 
until it rolled into view, another scarecrow on the same side of the road. Only this time it wasn't wearing the hat. I drove past it, barely looking at it and accelerating a little more. I could have sworn it turned its head to look at me. A minute later, I saw another. I kept going. Another and another, always in the same position, the same clothes, all without a hat. I just kept driving, sweating and freaking out. The next one I passed, I watched in the rear view as I sped by. I saw its reflection slowly get more distant until finally, just when it was almost out of view, it started to run. I swear to you, I saw its legs turn, and I watched it sprint back into the desert, faster than a man or animal could, for that matter. At this point, I must have been nearing the top speed of my truck. Every minute or so, I saw the same darned scarecrow out of my window. I probably saw it fifty times until I thought I heard it scream. When I pulled past it, I swear it yelled. It sounded inhuman. Its voice stretched and unnatural, like its vocal cords really were made out of straw. Without thinking, I rolled down my window, tossing the leathery old hat out. Then I prayed, all the while pushing it well over the speed limit. To my surprise, though, I didn't see it anymore. I began to slow down a little. Another ten minutes went by, and I didn't see another scarecrow. I never saw it again after that. It just stopped appearing. To this day, I still have no clue how the heck it kept up with me. If I had to guess, it probably did something to the driver of that Mini Cooper, though. And I'll be honest, I really don't want to know what. I'm done with long desert roads. If you ever see any cars without drivers in the middle of a barren stretch of desert, I reckon you avoid them, or you might run into Mr. Watcher. The Day I Almost Lost My Life From Anonymous This took place three years ago. I was 18 years old. Now, as a 21-year-old female, it still gives me the creeps. I was seeing this guy, we'll call him Jack, at the time of this story. Jack was 20 at the time. He and I had an agreement. Nobody was to know about our relationship. Due to both of our family backgrounds, we would be forced to marry each other or not see each other at all. So, needless to say, we often met in very secluded places. We just weren't ready for that kind of commitment, both being hurt in the past. Before you wonder, no, he wasn't violent, and this story isn't about him. More so about the guys we ran into at one particular rest stop. Now, the city I live in is very populated, and for our relationship to work, we needed to get away from it all from time to time. One cloudy day, we decided to take a drive a little ways out of town. I was supposed to be in classes until 5 in the afternoon, so when he picked me up at 8 a.m., I was excited to think that we had plenty of time to do whatever we wanted. The drive to get to where we were going was of moderate length. We listened to music over his stereo, and were just generally having a great time. I decided it was time for a break, so we stopped at a little rest stop area on the side of the road. 
This rest stop had a few tables and benches along with a couple of trash cans. Just next to the tables was a low fence to separate the rest stop from a farm. Beyond that fence lay a few hectares of beautiful green grass, the kind of grass that was grown to dry and make bundles of hay. As we sat at one of the tables, each enjoying a cigarette and some ice-cold orange juice, I felt anxiety building in the pit of my stomach. I stupidly brushed it off to me being anxious about being out of town, where nobody would know to find me with a person they wouldn't think to ask. I killed my cigarette and heard something familiar. Pulling into the rest stop just behind me, I heard a vehicle. I turned my head to look and saw a gray pickup truck of sorts. The windows were tinted, but through the windshield, I could make out two large figures, obviously male, but could not make out their features. Now, Jack was not a small guy. He was around six feet and muscular, thick black hair slicked back and a jaw that looked like it could break your bones with enough force. Being very intimidating by nature, he immediately squared his shoulders at the side of the truck behind me. He told me to get back in the car, and I protested. Let's not be rash, I told him. Someone probably just needs to take a leak. He looked at me with seriousness in his eyes. Something strikes me as shady, he said as he rose from his seat and took me gently by the arm, leading me back to the car. The rest of the drive was uneventful, and we had forgotten all about the shady truck. We made it to our destination, safely, and walked into a single-story cottage-like building that we had booked in advance for a few hours of amorous activities. In each other's company, we both truly enjoyed the few hours of total freedom we had, but this is where things got bad. I could have sworn that in the middle of our fun, I saw a figure at the window, directly next to the bed. I chalked it up to a shadow due to the cloudy, dark weather, but I was wrong. We gathered our belongings and made our way to the front desk, which was situated at one end of the parking lot. We parked the car close to the office for some reason that Jack had given me. As our backs were turned to the other end of the lot, from the time we stepped out of the cottage, I only noticed the gray pickup when I turned to get into the car from the passenger's side. The second I realized it was the same truck, I turned on my heel to tell Jack, but he had already finished checking out and was standing right behind me. Seeing the fear in my eyes, he moved quickly to get us out of there. Before I knew what was happening, three guys emerged from the truck. Two of them were quite big. The other was more average in height and size. They all wore jeans, and I distinctly remember one of the bigger ones wearing a leather jacket. Their eyes, that's what got me trembling. They looked crazed, like they were on something. They walked towards our car quickly. I flung the passenger side door open and practically threw myself inside. Jack did the same, starting the car and putting it into reverse. One of the men proceeded to stand behind the car in an attempt to block our way. I looked over to Jack, who was staring intently at the man in the rearview mirror. I could see how determined he was to get us out of there safely. The other two guys were now standing at each of our windows. The one at Jack's window called out, Hey man, that's a nice piece you got over there. 
She really knows how to move, too. How much for me to take you back to that room over there? He looked at me then, pointing to the room Jack and I had just left. I was utterly disgusted and whispered under my breath, Get me out of here, Jack. Jack looked at me and said, Babe, I don't care even if I have to run one of these suckers over. I'll get you home in one piece. He revved up the engine as a warning before lowering the emergency brake and backing up slowly to show the guy behind the car that he was not messing around. The guy at my window reached behind his back and pulled out a Magnum 357 revolver. He then pointed it directly at me. Get out of the car. He growled at me. I saw the nope on Jack's face and he edged the car backward, causing the guy behind us to jump to the side and out of the way. We then floored it out of there. I heard two shots coming from behind us as we screeched the heck out of the parking lot. I was bent over, holding my head down out of complete and utter terror. I stayed in that position for a good five minutes of fast driving. Jack made the smart decision to take some side roads in order to lose the creeps. Luckily for us, we knew the area better than they did. After a couple of turns, we were safe. I sat up, and finally the magnitude of the situation dawned on me. It was then that I began to bawl my eyes out. I got home safely, but sadly, I could never share the story with my loved ones, as Jack and I were never meant to be together. I think about this a lot. I don't know what those guys had in mind, and I don't think I'd ever like to find out. But I would like to remind everyone to be safe and always be aware of your surroundings. It doesn't hurt to be cautious. Warning. The following story contains scenes of animal violence. The time a bunch of stray dogs might have hunted down a skinwalker. From Fireclaw is Woot 1. I think the fan who submitted this story might be a Warriors fan, like me. Anyway, here goes. So, this is a story from my brother. As such, I have no way of validating that this happened at all, except one part that I'll get to later. Back in 2015, my brother worked for a security guard hiring place, not exactly sure what to call it. Basically, he'd call and they'd station him someplace or another that needed it. So this particular time, my brother got hired by the local cemetery. They'd had issues with kids sneaking in at night and messing things up. And at one point, they even broke a couple of graves. Well, his job was to drive around the cemetery and make sure no one was messing around. This area was pretty rural at the time and had a pretty bad stray dog problem. Dogs would often get lost around here, or people would drop them off, and they'd form packs and roam the countryside. On this particular night, my brother was at the cemetery. He noticed a pretty big pack of dogs, about eight or so, just wandering around and playing. There was a big Rottweiler, important later, 
a couple of mixed-breed dogs, and even a little Bichon Frise that was clearly someone's pet at some point, because it still had a harness on. So my brother is doing his rounds, which, like I said, was basically to drive from one end of the cemetery to the other, with a spotlight, and to make sure no kids were breaking in, doing things they weren't supposed to in one of the mausoleums or something. He was driving real slow and had the window down, his arm out the window with a spotlight, and it's pitch black at this point. Suddenly, he hears dogs going crazy, but then he hears what he can best describe as a sound like a screaming bird from the swamp episode of Avatar, but deeper and more human, with a rattling sound mixed in, like a rattlesnake's rattle. The dogs go silent before starting to back up, barking and snarling a few minutes later. Then something fast and pale runs in front of his headlights, with the eight dogs in pursuit barking and snarling. So he decides to follow the dogs, in fear that they're getting ready to tear someone's pet apart. He parks his car, gets out with a spotlight, then follows the sound of barking. But then he hears that scream again. He swears that he heard a faint mixed in with the weird screech and rattling. He gets to where the dogs are going nuts and shines his light at the spot. He is now surprised to see that the dogs have a deer backed up against the wall of a mausoleum. He said that this deer was a pale gray color. It was skinny and emaciated. He shined the light at its eyes. They were solid black, yet somehow no light reflected back. He said they were like the eyes of something dead. He is understandably confused, and he's standing there, a few yards away from a pack of angry, snarling dogs that haven't even registered that he's there. The dogs have this deer surrounded and are taking turns nipping at its hind end and legs. But my brother notices that every time they do, they recoil and sort of gag, as if the taste is appalling to them. My brother then hears a deep growling coming from behind him, and this big Rottweiler bowls past him, launching itself at this deer. It grabs at the deer's hind leg, and with a mighty shake, knocks the thing over, and just starts wailing on it. My brother then says the deer lets out that screech again. He watched as the deer took its hoof and begins to swipe, yes, swipe, at the dogs. The Rottweiler lets go, and the deer takes off, dogs hard on its heels. He never did guard work at that cemetery again, but he did get me to go back to the cemetery with them a few days later. That little Bichon Frise with the harness was there, and we managed to get it to come with us. And now he's had that dog for the last five years. The Thing in the Pond From Urilaja When I was ten years old, we got a new puppy. He was a spaniel, the most social and friendly little dog. He would run up to people on the street and greet them with a wildly wagging tail and excited little jumps. He never failed to greet a potential new friend. My responsibility was to walk him every day 
usually in the afternoon, but also the occasional late-night stroll. My favorite route was to take him through this little wooded area near our house. This wooded area lay behind the conservatoire and was protected from being cut down due to Siberian flying squirrels that inhabited the area. This tiny sanctuary had an artificial pond in it. It was murky, still water, but it had the occasional duck. It was customary for all new graduates of the conservatoire to swim a lap in the murky pond upon graduation day. It was a rite of passage of sorts. The area consisted of one path from one end to the other, the pond being near the southern entrance, and then another 500 meters of path after it into the woods. That particular night, in the dead of the Finnish winter, our poor puppy had tummy trouble, and my mom, exhausted from a day's work, asked me to take him outside one more time. It was already nearly midnight, but I agreed, seeing how all creatures should be allowed to use the bathroom when they needed to. I also love how the piercingly white snow glows in the night, how, if it's cold enough, your breathing fogs up, and a step on the snow makes it creak in a very satisfying manner underfoot. It was that kind of weather, so I put on my winter jacket and boots and off we went, into the pitch black night. As I usually did, I steered the puppy towards the little wooded area, away from streetlights. He pranced in the snow that reached up to his sides, like an excited rabbit. He seemed all better, pulling me forward so fast I almost fell over in the snow more than once. The little guy was sniffing every scent left by other dogs in the area, with his tail pointing straight up in excitement. As we approached the pond, the cold air carried with it a peculiar sound, a very steady, very consistent thump, 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 thump. I was a bit confused, since usually the area didn't have much traffic during the night. An occasional fellow dog walker, maybe. But seeing as how all the benches were covered in snow and the path was narrow, it wasn't exactly a spot to hang out in the middle of the night. As we turned to the opening with the pond, I froze. In the middle of the frozen pond sat a little boy. He sat on the ice, which had been cleared of at least a meter of snow, as if it had been dug up to reveal the ice. He was wearing clothes that struck odd to me, nothing modern at all. His clothes were all shades of orange and looked to be made from fabric instead of what kids in Finland wore. No colorful patterns or reflectors. He was also wearing a fur hat and leather mittens. It reminded me of pictures of my mom as a child in the late sixties and her winter clothes. Now, it seemed the thumping sound was coming from this little boy. He appeared to be around six years old and was very rhythmically hitting a huge rock on the ice that he was sitting on. But there was a problem with that, because the rock was way too big for such a small human to be lifting it, let alone smashing it repeatedly on the ice, like it weighed nothing. My first thought was that it was just some child from my neighborhood, but the longer I considered this option, the more ludicrous it seemed. The nearest houses were at least half a kilometer away, if not more. 
I'd seen no one else on my way here, no person that seemed to be watching over such a young child playing nearby. It would take a very uncaring parent to let a child out this late in freezing temperatures, all alone, and knowing that there was a source of water nearby. There was no logical way this kid could be there, unless he was in a very sad home situation. So I decided to save the day. I stepped off the path when the dog leash in my hand stopped me. Our dog, who would always and every time approach new people he met, was now desperately trying to pull me forward in our route to sniff the next pea-soaked snowbank. He didn't even acknowledge the boy on the ice. His eyes didn't steer that direction once. It's like I was the only one to actually see the boy. This boy didn't seem to notice me either. He kept hitting the ice under him. Thump, 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 completely oblivious of anyone or anything around him. There was a weird stillness in the air. All I could hear was the sound of this huge rock bouncing off the ice and sometimes cracking it further. I could see the ice had already started to chip away to form a dent. He must have been hitting it for a very long time, as that pond usually froze all the way down to the bottom. Ice during these winter months is tough as steel. I pulled my dog closer to the edge of the pond, almost holding my breath from anticipation, and the rush of saving a child made me swell with pride. Hey, are you okay out here? Your parents around? My voice was so weak. It seemed to be absorbed by the snow all around us. It was hard to speak. It felt forbidden. Like any second, this child would just disappear into thin air if I broke the spell that was keeping him in this world. The boy paid me no mind at all. It was like he was stuck in a forever loop of hitting the ice over and over again. Like he was just a mirage from another place and time. I started feeling more and more scared. It seemed that I couldn't form any kind of connection with this child. And now, I wanted to run. So that's what I did. My dog seemed so happy to finally be on our way, as I hurriedly started running on the path to make it to the other end of the wooded area. Good thing our puppy loved to race and forgot the wonderful smells of the yellow snow in an instant. All while I was running and slipping on the frozen path, all the way until I saw a streetlight shine its blissful light towards me and my oblivious galloping puppy, I could hear the perfectly rhythmic hollow thump, thump, thumping, until it faded to nothing and I was standing there out of breath, looking up and down the empty street, expecting anything to happen. I went home, and I told my mom what I saw. Of course, she didn't believe me, but every now and then, I wonder if decades ago, a little boy wearing a fur hat and a faded orange coat drowned in that pond on a cold autumn night, sinking to the bottom slowly suffocating in the water so cold it hurts to touch.
the pack is hungry. From Tyler in Trouble I grew up in the foothills, swamps, and muggy woods of South Carolina. As soon as my siblings and I hit ten years old, we were taught to safely use and maintain hunting tools such as knives, bows, traps, and firearms. Our parents made sure to instill a respect in us for animals, especially those we took for food and an understanding of the food chain. This particular story is from when I was around 17 years old and a fairly experienced hunter for my age. I had developed a deep love of hunting raccoons, and I took part every season. I was a black sheep in the local hunting community, though, because unlike most people my age, I refused to hunt alone. In most young hunters' minds, they picture the hunt, the kill, and the praise they would get from putting food on the table. But as I stated above, I understood that no matter how strong I was, or how big my gun was, I could always fall prey to something out there. More often than not, my usual hunting partner was my stereotypical hillbilly uncle, R. He was raised very much the same as us. He never failed to pass on a useful tip or guide me to a better location to hunt or fish. That night, we were on the land off the banks of Broad River close to the North Carolina state line. We were hunting raccoons with his two best hounds, Baby Doll and Scooter. It was pitch black as the clouds hid the moon behind a thick blanket. The night was frigid and dead silent, except for the distant flow of the river and the dogs rattling around in the dog box. Looking back now, I fully understand that night hunting is not for everyone. The temperature was dipping into the single digits, and every branch our lights touched resembled long, bony fingers reaching limply out of the blackness for the ground below. We geared up and did a basic check of the surrounding area to confirm it was safe to hunt. We met up at the tailgate, and with a nod, we cut the dogs loose to track. Scooter and Baby Doll were from the same litter, and their teamwork in the woods was hard to beat. Despite having vastly different methods for tracking a scent, Baby Doll was notorious for bolting after a scent and covering hundreds of yards before stopping to find it again. She was like a razor blade, gliding through the dark trees and across frozen creeks. Scooter, on the other hand, was a slow mover. He stayed only just behind Baby Doll, shuffling around in the brush as a midpoint between his sister and us, who were at that moment at the truck watching them on the tracking system. He would only leave his usual post when Baby Doll found something or if there was trouble. And that night, there would be trouble. The GPS alerted that Baby Doll had treed something, and as we watched Scooter bolt in her direction, we followed suit. We moved quickly through the frozen brush, calling to the dogs, encouraging them as we jogged deeper into the maw of the forest. I'm not sure when it happened, because of how rough the terrain became to get through at certain points, but I got separated from R and wound up alone in the dark, standing in the bottom of a deep wash with a shallow stream babbling across pebbles and tree roots. I couldn't hear the dogs anymore and my calls to R went unanswered. I climbed back up the wall of dirt that I had slid down in my pursuit, 
hoping the high ground would help me carry my voice. After two more yells with no reply, I reluctantly tried calling his cell phone. He answered on the first ring, shouting into the phone only audible between gunshots. Go back. Go back to the road. Then the phone went quiet. It was then I heard the distant echoes of gunshots cascading over the silent ambience, accompanied by vigorous yips and barks. I remembered being confused for a minute, wondering what had happened and if I should try to help. I came to the conclusion that I should backtrack to the road, but every so often I would yell back to let him know where I was, if he could hear me. I walked about fifty yards and yelled back through the trees with only distant crashes and racket to answer me. I had almost made it another ten yards when I heard a fierce ripping of vines and bushes. It was Baby Doll in a full sprint in my direction. I thought she might slow down as she got closer to me, but she never missed a beat and ran past me like grease lightning. Then, another crash, and the yips I heard over the phone returned in the distance, getting closer now. I knew then why R had panicked. In their charge, the dogs had disrupted a pack of coyotes, and they were chasing them, and by association, us. I began jogging after Baby Doll, hoping to secure her in the box and get off the ground. The yips, growls, and barks were getting louder behind me, I struggled to navigate the brush in my thick winter clothes, but I kept moving, my dull yellow headlamp turning my world into a hazy blur of tree trunks and shadows. I came within view of the road and saw Baby Doll already on the lowered tailgate barking into the woods. Another shredding of brush behind me sent me into a full panic, but galloping past my legs came Scooter, mouth open bawling as he went. I started up the hill to the truck, and my headlamp went out. I fumbled around in the darkness and made my way up the hill on my hands and knees, out of breath and hands shaking. I opened the box doors so the dogs could get inside, and hopped into the bed, pulling the tailgate shut. I searched my coat pockets frantically for a light, which thankfully I found. I stood upright in the truck bed flashlight in one hand shaking violently and rifle in the other. And then I saw them. They were like stars shining through the pitch-black darkness. Their eyes, those gleaming eyes and ravenous sounds flowed out of the tree line like a nightmare come to life. I began shooting into the trees in the air trying to scare them enough to turn back. It didn't take long. They ran back into the trees and the eyes soon disappeared. But I could still hear them. They were just out of view, but they were definitely there, watching me. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't just jump down and get into the truck. It was locked, and R had the keys. I couldn't risk shooting where they might be because I didn't know where R was. Even if they did come into view again, I only had four rounds left in the magazine. I was stuck. I tried yelling to R again, and again, but my voice was overrun by the pack's symphony from the trees. The cold was getting to me. The mad dash back to the road caused me to sweat heavily, and it felt like icicles were falling from my forehead. 
My light was dim, and my legs throbbed. Even with the circumstances as they were, I was fighting the urge to fall asleep. I tried calling R's phone a few times over the next few minutes, but no answer. On my last attempt, it went straight to voicemail. His phone must have been dead. The ruckus from the trees began to get more and more distant. Then I started to hear gunshots and brush thrashing violently. I soon found R's headlamp bouncing through the trees. When he came into full view, he was white as a sheet and out of breath. He stopped at the bottom of the hill and fired three more shots into the shadows, then climbed up. We rushed home after that, feeding the wood stove thick blocks until the metal popped and groaned from the heat. We were cut up, battered, frozen, shaken, and exhausted. But we went right back the next night to hunt again. Tree People From EMFH About a year ago in Great Falls, Montana, I was living in a camper with my boyfriend at the time. Let's call him Chris, along with my friend T. It was late at night and freezing cold as it was winter time. None of us could sleep and all our phones were dead. The camper had no power at the time. Chris and I decided we were going to go to the bank just right down the street from where the RV was parked because they had these posts with outlets. When we got there, we plugged in our phones. As my phone was charging, I heard a really weird noise and started to look around. There was this tree at the edge of the woods about three feet away from us. Standing in the middle of this tree was a woman standing there motionless, staring at me. Freaked out, I turned and whispered to Chris, Do you see that woman by the tree? He looked around for a moment and replied, oh, What woman? I don't see anyone. I froze for a second, then looked back at the tree. That woman was still there. I tried to take my eyes off of her. Looking up, I was surprised when I saw two branches on the left side, each with six babies and the right side with six children. I looked around more and saw sixteen more of these things. They were all in the distance just staring at me. I looked over at a bench under a tree at the entrance of the bank, and I saw an elderly couple. I could tell they were one of these people, too. Once I saw them, I started to hear voices in different languages. I hurried to my phone and turned it on to Google Translate. I repeated what was said. From what I could gather, it seemed each person was recalling memories, telling stories of who they are, or perhaps who they were. I looked around again, but the people were now gone. It's like they disappeared. I told Chris that we needed to leave. As we grabbed our things and prepared to head back, I heard the voices pick up again. I thought to myself it made no sense, they can't be real, it's just in my head. But then I looked up, and I saw the woman again. She was in the tree and her mouth was curled into a big smile, with the whitest teeth I'd ever seen. I yelled, Go away! Chris looked at me weird. 
I told him we're leaving, now, and that we need to hurry up. I could feel that evil-looking smile drilling into the back of me. As Chris and I began to run, I heard them say something else, but my phone no longer had service, so I couldn't get it translated. Not until we got back to the RV. Until then, I repeated what was said in my mind over and over so that I'd remember it. As soon as I got back, I got reception, so I repeated it into Google Translate. It just said, run. But there was something else, too. One other thing that Google Translate said meant, her smile, dangerous. I was freaked out, and I tried to brush it off. Yet I couldn't shake the feeling that I had to look out the window for something. I gave in, and I looked through the glass. I saw that old couple on the bench across the street. They'd followed me back, and I started to cry. I calmed down after a bit, and I looked out there again. They had disappeared, and luckily, I never saw them again. To this day, I won't go back to that bank at night, because that was the weirdest and creepiest thing I've ever experienced. The Trust Exercise From Sean D. It was 1996. I was camping with other students, whom, like me, were from poor families. We were taking part in a special program aimed at youths who don't get to experience certain things due to monetary constraints. We were on day two of our three-day camping excursion. It was an October night. There was a thick, soupy fog in the air, adding to the slowly darkening sky. By 9 p.m., we couldn't see much further than a few feet in front of us. Even with a nice, strong flashlight to aid you, the visibility was bad. The camp counselors decided to use these conditions to give the campers a trust exercise. Not one of the fall-and-catch variety, but a follow-my-voice type of exercise. Using a flashlight was considered cheating. There were about 14 of us, so we were split into two groups of seven, each led by a counselor to a specific area. We were told to stick with the path and to follow it to the campsite. We would call out every 20 seconds or so to lead the other ones behind us, who would actually be blindfolded. We began by lining up in the fog, putting our hands on the shoulders of the ones in front of us and counting out loud. I was fourth in line of seven. When I heard three, I responded by placing my hand on the shoulder in front of me, which I could only see as a dark blotch amongst the thick fog and shouting out my place in line. I waited until I heard seven called out and waited for the counselor to lead us to our starting point. I prepared to walk when I heard a voice call out to start. But the one in front of me didn't budge. Hey, what gives? I asked. Why aren't we moving? I think I heard them say to go. At the sound of my voice, the one leading me suddenly tugged forward, nearly causing me to fall forward on my face. I held on, being careful of my grip. It wasn't easy. We were moving at a jog, and our speed was gradually increasing. After a few short minutes, we were moving at a full-out run. I had no choice but to hold on or be left behind, and I had no choice but to follow the path, or I'd be left alone to follow the path in the dark. I stumbled a lot, 
all the while wondering why the one in front of me wasn't calling out trip warnings. I took up a habit of keeping my eyes on my feet, thankful that we weren't yet blindfolded. That was when I saw something that filled me with a sense of dread. The person I had a hold of wasn't following the path, but they were still increasing in speed. Ice went through my veins. Who was this person? Were they part of the group at all? And where were we going? As we ran, we came through an area where the fog was thin. I noticed that my guide was dressed oddly. His clothes were in tatters and barely there at all. Reminded me of a caveman or something similar. They also didn't have... feet. The legs ended at ankles. The flesh there appeared burnt. I immediately tried to let go. Their shoulder felt oddly sticky. I began to panic as I felt as if I was being pulled upward. I pulled away as hard as I could, falling about seven feet afterward, tumbling into thorny weeds and bushes. I lay still as I heard something moving fast away through the tree branches. I don't know how long I lay there before I faintly heard voices calling out for me. Cautiously, I followed the voices back to the trail. It was the three that had been behind me in the lineup. They were sweaty and dirty and eyes full of fear. As we followed the path, they told me what had happened to them. Much like me, they at first tried to keep up, but after the first stumble, they suddenly found that for whatever reason they couldn't get a grip on my shoulder, it felt like grease to them. All they could do was sit and listen and call out for help. We made it to the others, who were just as scared as I. They didn't hesitate to check us for injuries, while asking us where we had gone. After hearing our sides of the story, the camp counselor told me that I should count my blessings, because he believed that what had tried to take me away may have been a wendigo, a man-eating air spirit. We canceled the remainder of the trust exercise, the creature could return to try again, they said, and it would be very unwise to test our luck again. We spent that night in flimsy tents, laying down while listening to what we hoped was just wind rustling through the tree's leaves. It's Not My Brother From Michael C. It was a cold and snowy night in the outskirts of the small town of Taos, New Mexico. I was lying in my bed with my dog, getting ready to go to sleep. It was around 12 a.m. when I finally turned off the TV, laying my cell phone down. Now, my room was originally a garage my dad and I had converted into my bedroom, which is separated from the rest of the house. I could very well feel the wind in the garage coming in from the outside so I bundled up under my blankets and fell asleep. Sometime later, I woke up to the sound of someone at my door trying to open it. I reminded myself that I did indeed lock the deadbolt, but still, I began to look for my phone so I could turn the light on before getting up out of bed. I quickly found my phone, but before I could turn it on or get up, I hear the door open. I should add that the way the bed was situated, I was facing away from the door. 
So when the door opened, I could not see who was there. Not until they spoke. I lay there, thinking that I must have dreamt the door opening, because I didn't hear anyone come in. But then, from the foot of my bed, I hear it. Hey, brother, your door was locked. <laughs> That's okay. I'm in now. It was the voice of my little brother, who at the time of this event was thirteen. I was twenty-seven. I don't move an inch, trying to think how he got in my room without the keys. Why was he even awake at this time? I reminded myself if someone was there, my dog Lotus would wag his tail as he always does. A few seconds pass, and I feel the wag of Lotus's tail start. Look at me, brother. The voice says, I still don't move or say anything. I'm doing my best to act like I'm asleep. All I can really do is lie there, wondering what this thing is, standing at my feet, pretending to be my little brother. It goes quiet again. No, I must have been dreaming, must have had a nightmare, I tell myself. I feel a slump in my bed on both sides of my feet. I reach down to the ground and grab my shotgun. But then I'm reminded... I can't do that. What if it is my brother? But why is he in here right now? The thoughts race through my mind. I know you're not sleeping, brother. Why won't you look at me? The voice comes again, sounding a bit deeper than my brother this time. Fine. Be that way. The voice says, as it heads over to the door, opening it once more, but without closing it all the way. I feel Lotus slowly stop wagging his tail and sit up. I'm too terrified to move. Finally, after what felt like an hour of just lying there, I find my remote, turn on the TV, and I wait to see if I hear anything else other than the TV. I sat up in bed trying to justify it as sleep paralysis, because I have had that before. I stand up and do a sweep of my door, and nothing seems off, except that the door is still open. I walk over to it and open it. It's still snowing outside, but not that hard. But then I see it. There are wet footprints leading up to my bed but not leaving, and the fresher snow outside my door is undisturbed. I shut the door, lock the deadbolt, and stay up for the rest of the night, TV on and gun in hand. The Normal Flat Tire From 18 Wills Hummin' I used to drive coast to coast in an old Peterbilt. At the time of this experience, it was probably midnight. I was driving through Iowa 
and my destination was somewhere near a town called Clinton in Iowa. I think I was going about 75 miles per hour on a two-lane road, when suddenly I felt my back tire blow out. As with any flat I'd had, I pulled over. I immediately took notice of my surroundings. I was at the side of the road, near a very wooded place, and it was quite dark. The only lights I could see were mine and the occasional car that passed by. I walked over to my tire with the new one, only to see that the tire wasn't just flat. It had been sliced open as I was driving. That's weird. I decided to look around for the culprit, the thing that had cut my tire. I must have walked a few feet away from the trailer, closer toward the woods, when I heard my truck shift into gear without me. I went running full speed towards my truck. I noticed a figure in the cab. I threw open the passenger side door, only to see that no one was there. I jumped into the passenger seat and put the thing back into park, wondering what the heck just happened. I decided I needed to get some rest, because I felt like I was going crazy. I locked up the cabin and fell asleep for about an hour before I suddenly heard another tire on my rig blow out. Heart pounding in my chest, I grabbed my grandpa's old rifle, then jumped out of the cab. The moment I landed on the ground and looked toward the back of the truck, I saw a figure running away into the woods. Something or someone was trying to sabotage my truck, but for what purpose? At that point, I was scared to death. I got back in the semi and drove off, which wasn't very safe considering the tires. But at the first gas station I saw, I got out and changed the tires myself. Then I fell asleep for a while. About a month later, I quit driving a semi, and even still that incident creeps me out. So now, I just enjoy watching the trucks drive past my house. Was it the Michigan Dogman? From Sarah H. I ride horses at a barn in Michigan, along with some of my really good friends. The following story is an encounter my friend Jay had. One late evening at the barn, Jay finished up riding and taking care of his horse, so he began to set off for the night. Now, our barn rests on an extensive string of dirt roads surrounded by mostly forest. It's quite desolate, and there's an eerie feeling to it after it gets dark. So, Jay leaves the barn and turns his beloved jeep onto the first small dirt road leading away from the barn. As his headlights meet the road, they illuminate what appears to be a large dog right in the middle of the road. Jay figured the dog belonged to a farmer in the area and decided to not approach the animal, but to rather flick it with his high beams in hopes that it would get the hint, then move along off the road. But the dog-like creature turns its head in Jay's direction. Jay notices it's hunched over an unidentifiable animal in the road, eating it. The canine-like creature proceeds to get up and begins to run into the woods like a man, on his hind legs. Jay, in shock, speeds the heck out of there. 
It's a short story, and I wish I could give more information. But for me, knowing there is a bipedal dog creature roaming right near where our horses sleep, it's enough to give me the creeps at night. After hearing this story, and seeing the absolute truth in his face when he tells it, I am afraid to be at the barn alone after dark. I hope to never meet the Michigan Dogman myself. Satanic Cop and Something in the Window From Heartfelt 87 I'm a 33-year-old woman and an eclectic pagan, yet the story I'm about to share with you still makes me raise an eyebrow. I've seen my fair share of paranormal happenings. This story takes place in 2005, when I was only 18 years old, in central Indiana, about an hour north of Indianapolis. It's a whole lot of corn and soybean fields. Anyway, this involves me and four other people, one other young woman and three fellas. It was a boring summer weekday evening, and we were in the apartment just babbling about nothing when we got on the subject of local haunted places. One place we discussed was the Satanic Church, which is out in the middle of nowhere, and as we later realized, one county over. The story goes that supposedly in the late 1800s or early 1900s, a cult took over the church and killed the parishioners one day. No clue if that's actually true or not, but that's the story we heard. The church is small, about that old, and it's one of those that actually has a cemetery on the property, just to add to the creepy factor. Well, the lot of us being 18 to 20 years old and bored out of our minds, we decided to go on a little road trip out to the church. We all piled into our lady friend's little Chevy Beretta, and we headed out. Mind you, she's the only one that actually knows where we're going. So the other girl is driving. One guy is in the front passenger seat. I'm in the back behind the driver, and the other two guys are in the back with me. We drive for about half an hour in the country and then down a gravel road before we make it to the church, which is on a gravel road across from a cornfield with the church on the driver's side of the car. By then, it's well after midnight. We were apparently the only car on the road since we left town, and the road we were on was so narrow, only one vehicle could drive down it at any given time. Now, we've all seen our fair share of horror movies to know better than to actually get out of the car. So we sit there with the windows rolled down, staring at this church. In one window at the bottom left, nearest the graveyard, is a faint translucent bluish-gray figure. It appeared like some smoke decided to try to become corporeal. It was in the shape of a person. It was for the most part androgynous. I squinted really hard. Then I said, Do you guys all see that thing in the window there? Everyone saw it. All five of us. As we stared, transfixed on the church, I started to see shadows moving in the graveyard. I know at least the other girl with us saw it too. The next thing we knew, we were all blinded by glaring lights. 
there was a truck with floodlights that had pulled up in front of us. We all god and act in the sudden light. Then, out of the truck, steps a man in a county sheriff's uniform. Not the county we're from, but the next one over. I didn't realize we were that far out. He comes up to the car and starts asking the usual questions, all the while shining a flashlight in each of our faces, like he couldn't already see us well enough with the lights on his big ol' yee-yee truck. Now, it's important that I reiterate that we're on a narrow, one-lane gravel road, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, with absolutely no other traffic from anywhere. And when the guy in the sheriff's uniform came up to the car, he went over to the passenger window for some reason. By doing this, he made the driver have to reach over the passenger to hand him her information. He was a young guy, I'd say early twenties. If you've ever been pulled over, then you know that it is not the proper way to do that. I understand that sometimes the officer will go to the passenger side on a busy road for safety reasons. But again, it was a gravel road in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. The man asks us all to get out of the car to perform a vehicle search. We comply, getting out and handing him our IDs. He uses his cell phone to call it in, but he had a radio on his shoulder. I assumed it would be protocol to use the radio. I was sure of it. As we're all just standing there, I look back at the church. That thing, that figure, it's still in the window, and I swear it appeared to be laughing at us. The man lazily searched the car, giving us back our IDs and telling us to just go home. It wasn't until we made it back to the apartment that I realized it. I started to point out everything that the sheriff did wrong. Going to the wrong side of the car, using his cell phone, using a truck that wasn't at all an official police vehicle. It was just a big truck with bright, annoying floodlights attached. I still talked to the other woman that was with us that night, and I brought up this story to her a few months back. She said she thought that she read somewhere that a guy from that county got arrested for parading around in a family member's sheriff's uniform. But I don't remember hearing about anything of the sort. We concluded that the church was definitely haunted, and that guy definitely was not a sheriff. I wish any of us had a phone with video capabilities at the time, so we could have gotten a badge number and a name. But in 2005, that was a commodity. Just remember, kids, if you're ever pulled over or stopped by police of any kind, it is well within your rights to record everything they do, even if they tell you not to. After all, you never know when it might be an imposter. It wasn't an iguana from Anonymous. When I was 13, I went to visit my family in Mexico. I was having a great time getting to know about the traditions about the legends they have in the town, and even the scary stories they had, which intrigued me the most. One day, I was out in the town with my uncle. A friend of his approached us, 
He invited my uncle to go night fishing with them, but my uncle said no, as he had to work that night, but he said he might go next time. That night, I was waiting for my uncle at my grandma's house. We planned on going to eat some tacos. He would be getting off around eleven at night, so by the time we went to eat and come back, it was one in the morning. A few minutes after we got back, someone knocked at the door. My grandma went to open it. There stood my uncle's friend, standing outside with a pale face and a look of terror. We brought him inside to calm him down. My uncle asked what was going on with him, and why he looked so pale, like he had just seen the dead. The man, in a panic, began to explain that he had gone fishing by himself out at the lake in the wilderness. But, the entire night, he wasn't having any luck, so he decided to pack and head back home. He got on his bike and was following the trail that goes around the lake, and while he was looking over at the lake, he started to see a ripple on the water. He saw something preparing to come out of the lake. At first, he thought it was an iguana, but as he got closer to that side of the lake, he noticed it was bigger than that. It came out of the water on all fours, and my uncle's friend noticed that it had scales all over its body. They were very shiny, reflecting the light of the full moon. He noticed then that it had a pointed tail, like a lizard, but much shorter, and while he was getting closer to that side of the lake, the creature heard him and turned around, and then it stood up on two legs. He said the creature looked like it was six feet tall and had these big yellow eyes and was just staring at him, following his every movement with that stare. While he passed it by, he decided to go a little faster on the bike he was on so he could get out of there more quickly. After that story... My grandma told us that ever since she was a little girl, she had heard tales about a fisherman that made a deal with the devil, but didn't keep his side of the deal. So he was dragged into the water by the devil himself and was transformed into the creature my uncle's friend saw. They call him El Chavarin. Supposedly, he is responsible for many of the drownings at the lake and all the rivers connected to it. What did I see? From KFOT 93 I'm a long-haul truck driver, so I'm no stranger to the States. I've seen things that I can't explain, but this is by far the weirdest thing to ever happen to me. I was driving through Arizona, heading westbound on I-40. I'd finally hit Flagstaff and got to a truck stop so I could handle my business. As I departed Flagstaff, I ran by mile marker 185. It's about 10 miles from Flagstaff, Arizona. As I passed mile marker 185, there was what seemed to be a person hitchhiking. The only problem was this guy was huge, like 8 feet tall looking straight into the passenger window of my semi-truck. On top of that, he seemed to be as wide as the truck from shoulder to shoulder. I passed this hitchhiker. About half a mile down the road, I saw the exact same person 
or thing. Once again I passed him, but once again it kept happening, even twenty miles down the road to mile marker 165. I saw him every few miles. After I passed marker 165, I didn't see him anymore. So I thought that was done with. It was over. But I was dead wrong. I got down to mile marker 145, and I had to take a leak, so I pulled over on the side of the road to handle my business. I was about halfway done when I heard an ear-piercing scream, mixed between what sounded like a deer and a human. As soon as I heard it, I jumped and began to look around. Just outside the halo of my headlights, I spotted it. I was never more confused and scared in my life. I tried to figure out what it was when I heard something flying through the air. Suddenly, I heard a thump, thump. Sitting three feet away from me was a huge rock the size of a basketball. It must have been eighty pounds. That thing had thrown it at me, and it landed only three feet away. I wasted no time trying to hop back in the truck, getting away from whatever that thing was. As I passed it, it just stared me down, and I never saw it again. Can someone tell me what I saw? Creature at Kent's Lake, Utah From Gallows Calibrator This happened at Fish Lake National Forest in Utah. There are three Kent's Lakes. Upper Kent's Lake, Kent's Lake, and Lower Kent's Lake. This happened in the middle one. I am no stranger to the paranormal and unknown. I've seen many unexplained occurrences, and I'm pretty sure my house is haunted. But this is a different story. I was camping at the lake with my father and younger sister. It was less than a month ago as of writing this, so the events are still fresh in my mind. Now, we often do go camping, but usually we camp closer to home in Southern California. This campsite was a bit more secluded than we were used to. We often camped with our neighbors as well, whom I get along with. But they were not with us on this trip. After an eight-hour drive to the campsite, my sister and I were starting to argue a lot. The lake was beautiful. We saw a lot of chipmunks, squirrels, and fish, as well as some elk and deer and cows. We even spotted two golden eagles. The beauty of the nature there that surrounded us lulled me into a false sense of security. After a particularly nasty fight with my sister, I went off exploring in an attempt to calm myself down. I've struggled with anger issues in the past, something I'm working with my therapist to get better at. I crossed the lake angrily, unaware of my surroundings. I got to the floodgate on the other side of the lake, and I was about to head into the forest when suddenly everything felt wrong. I felt as if someone was there with me, and they didn't want me around. There were no animals or bugs in sight which was very strange. I contemplated turning back, or at least going back to camp to get a radio, so I could call for help if I needed to. 
But then I remembered how mad I was at my sister, and as the fury grew again in my mind, the doubt practically disappeared. It seems my anger blinds me from any sense of dread or self-preservation. Still, as I trudged into the thickly wooded forest, I felt myself constantly checking for my throwing knives on my belt, as if somehow they'd disappeared. Eventually, as I kept walking, and the feeling got worse, I pulled out one of the knives from its place on my hip. As I gripped the hilt, I wondered how much damage such a small knife could really do. I continued going through, not letting the fear stop me. As I walked through the forest, it was dead silent. Not in the way that a silence fell over the forest, but that I was the only one making a sound since I left the shore of the lake. This, too, was concerning, but I brushed it off, saying my loud footsteps probably scared all the animals away. I came across a gross smell. I stopped in my tracks and I looked around. I could see nothing. Not until I glanced down. A few inches away from my left foot was a dead squirrel. Gross, but still not out of the ordinary. I had to wonder, though, why there were no flies swarming around the dead body. I carefully stepped around it, feeling kind of sad, but continuing on. About ten minutes later, I decided to take a break. I had asthma, and it was getting hard for me to breathe. As I sat still, now completely silent, the woods were too. It was as if someone had just stopped time. I began to feel nauseous, and I thought heading back might be a good idea. I looked over at the seemingly empty forest ahead of me. I noticed a hawk feather. I thought this was really interesting, so I walked over to pick it up. And then I noticed another. And another. There were a lot of these feathers. And then there was the corpse of a hawk. Now I was starting to get really freaked out. I grabbed my knife again, and I booked it out of there. I was almost running, but not quite, because I was in a thickly forested hill. I was almost to the shoreline. I could see it, but then I heard something. The snapping of a branch. The first other sound I'd heard since entering those trees. I froze, then built up courage to turn around slowly. It may have been a deer or elk, but there, sitting on the forest floor, was this thing. I've no idea what it was, but it was dark like a shadow. Its limbs were almost undefined, but they were long and thin. It crawled on four legs almost like a giant bug, but quadrupedal. It had white, almost glowing eyes. Those eyes were full of hatred. This thing was big, arms almost as long as my entire body. It seemed to have no facial features besides eyes, no nose or mouth. But it had hands, hands with five fingers and filthy blood-stained claws. I ran. I ran as fast as I could. I ran out to the shore, too terrified to look back. My lungs were burning, but I didn't stop running until I got back to our campsite. Still, that thing followed me to the tree line, but I don't think it went any further. But it followed me long enough to grab my ankle. 
and as I yanked my foot back, my boots were splashed with blood, and I got a nasty scratch on my ankle to prove it. When I made it back, I didn't tell my dad or sister, in fear that they would not believe my story. Instead, I told them that I'd fallen, and that's how I'd gotten the injury. I have no idea what I saw, but I know it wanted me dead, just like that squirrel and that hawk. I tried to research it, but I really have no idea where to start. All I know is that I'm never going back to Fish Lake National Forest ever again. Horses don't have wings. From Jersey Cat. Everyone who lives around the New Jersey Pine Barrens knows a bit about the Leeds Devil. You probably do too. It's a cryptid like any other. Also goes by the alias Jersey Devil. It's a popular staple in the culture of the small township I live in, and a welcome one at that, as it is the sole contributor to our tourist industry. You'll find thematic shops, restaurants, and sometimes even hotels dedicated to this urban legend. The lore goes something like this. Way back in the 18th century, a woman named Jane Leeds, sometimes called Mother Leeds, had a large family of twelve children. One day she found out she was pregnant for the thirteenth time, and out of frustration, she cursed the unborn child, declaring it would be the devil. Nine months later, on a cliché dark and stormy night, she gave birth to the boy, and though at first it was a normal human, it morphed into some sort of creature, with hooves, a goat's head, bat wings, and a forked tail, before taking off out of the chimney and into the pine barrens. Of course, no local really believes any of it. Maybe one night your grandfather would tell a story about how he swore he saw it while locking up the farm, or something like that. Then you'd give him a laugh, say, Sure, Grandpa, and forget about it. At least, that's how it was for me. Being introduced to the mythos so early on in my life, I developed a bored outlook over it, not believing in any part or respecting the legend. Little did I know on my 19th birthday, that was all going to change. I had been celebrating most of the day with my two closest friends, Tom and Marie. It was great. We hung out by a little creek, drinking and skipping rocks, enjoying each other's company. In my town, there wasn't much to do, beyond a run-down arcade and a theater that only rotated titles every three months, so it was often more fun to just hang out. Anyway, everything was going well. We were preparing to head back soon as it was getting dark. I think I was pretending to be a mugger or something like that with Tom, using the flare gun my dad gifted me earlier that day as a prop. This goes on until we hear this rustling in the bushes on the other side of the water. Soon after, some girl pops her head out. The first thing we noticed was that she was covered in mud, like all over her face and clothes. She just sort of stares at us, and we stare back, until Marie says something. Hey, are you okay? The girl looks behind her quickly, before she walks down the bank hesitantly, and starts crossing over to us. 
As she gets close, we can make her out better. We were all in our late teens. She was probably nine or ten at most. She was wearing a long dress of sorts, white and baby blue, which really made the mud stick out even more. She crossed the rocks and finally steps out onto our bank. She looks at all three of us, before she goes up to Marie and hugs her around the waist. Then she starts to cry. Marie looks at us, mouthing, What the heck? She then starts trying to talk to the girl. Me and Tom are just staring, almost laughing from how crazy all this was. Marie pushes her off before asking, Hey, what's wrong? She was really sweet about it, considering she was a bit drunk. The girl keeps on crying, and she finally speaks. I, I, I saw a monster. She stammered through tears. Marie looked at us again, sarcastically, before leaning down to face the girl. Where are your parents, sweetie? Are you out here all alone? The girl shakes her head, once again speaking through tears. It, it, it got mommy, so I ran. Immediately after she said this, we tensed up. It's one thing for a child to imagine a monster in the woods. But what she said just implied something a whole lot worse. The most dangerous thing of nature you'd find up in these woods were snakes, but not ones that could take humans down easily, and the scariest thing you'd find. Probably a bobcat. Still, I thought a little kid would be more inclined to call a bobcat a kitty rather than a monster, even if it did attack their parent. Tom spoke up after that. He was never one to stay quiet when he got nervous. A monster, huh? What'd it look like? Marie glared at him, angry that he was just scaring the girl more. She replied, though. It was loud. Marie got her attention once more. What's your name, sweetie? As she asked, I remember Tom muttering something under his breath about asking what it looked like, not what it sounded like. The little girl said her name was Clara. After a bit more introduction, Marie prompted us. So what do we do? The girl just stood there, real quiet, sniffling a little. Well, it's about to get dark. Let's take her back with us and we can call the cops or something. Everyone seemed in agreement with my suggestion, so we picked up our bottles and started heading back up the path that led to the road, with Marie holding Clara's hand along the way. On the walk, I felt a little bad that we didn't try to find her parents. I mean, it would have been a bad idea to walk through the woods just as the sun was setting, but they must have been worried sick, maybe even injured. Clara wouldn't or couldn't give us much more info about the thing she saw attack her mom, but our best guess was still a bobcat, or something like that. Where we were, none of our cell phones worked, so we had to walk maybe a mile or so to get even minimal reception. Otherwise, we would have called the cops much sooner. So down the road we went. It was dark, yeah but familiar enough to the three of us that we knew exactly where we were going. Clara was obviously scared, being in an unfamiliar place, but she clung to Marie, trusting her for whatever reason. 
the little girl kept pace with us pretty well. Up until then, it was a quiet night. Before we heard a sound, it was like timber, trees falling over. It sounded far away at first, gradually growing closer. It never got too close, though. Clara was scared, and me and my friends found it odd. It was a really loud sound, like a whole tree was falling over, and we heard it multiple times. It wasn't too rare considering all the dead, rotting trees out here, but to hear it so often indicated something else other than decay causing it. All of a sudden, we hear a different noise, like big wings flapping. It rang out directly overhead. It was fast, and when we looked up, we didn't see anything against the dark sky. After she heard it, Clara began to freak out, saying, It's back! It's back! It's back! She kept chanting this, hypnotized by the noise. Marie tried to snap her out of it, but she just kept going off and wouldn't keep walking. So she picked her up, carrying her as we moved along. Tom was mad, though, and a little scared. What the heck was that? I don't know, I replied. Just a big bird, I guess. Well, why is she so freaked out? He points to Clara. She's a kid, Tom. Leave her alone. All the while, that little girl kept repeating its back, its back, as if having a panic attack. Though she became quieter after Marie scooped her up, I remember Tom spinning around to return the argument. Before he just stopped, mouth agape. He was in front of us, so the rest of us stopped too, looking at him. What is it? He kept staring over our heads before he finally raised a finger, pointing behind us. What is that? We follow his index finger, which points down the road. It's all black until maybe two hundred meters away, where a retro streetlight shined down onto the pavement. Under it, we saw what appeared to be a horse. A real big but skinny horse. Deep brown. We couldn't make out a mane or anything, but it sure looked like a horse. It was facing towards us, perfectly still. We all stared at it except Clara, who had her face pressed against Marie. Is that a horse? As soon as she spoke, it clicked in all three of us. The little girl saying monster, the trees being pushed over, the sound of wings. The idea came to me and I knew the others pictured it too, as everyone became really quiet. There were no wild horses out here. Heck, I don't even think a horse would have the eyesight to see us from that distance, nor the patience to stay as still as a statue. We weren't looking at an ordinary animal. No, we were looking at the Leeds Devil. Tom walked backwards a little. Guys, maybe we should pick up the pace. The terror was evident in his voice. We started to walk with him real quick as we kept our eyes on the thing. It stayed still until we cleared another hundred yards. And then it changed. This is going to sound insane, but all three of us watched as the thing stood up. It got up onto its hind legs only as its front ones hung ahead like arms. Then it walked forward a little, 
still on its back legs. Each pace was heavy and deliberate. We could hear it hit the ground each time. Slowly it got faster, and so did we. I remember Marie passing the little girl to Tom as we began to run. Right away we heard the thundering hooves pick up, getting impossibly quick, and then they just stopped. We turned around once more to see the thing not running anymore but gliding on these huge leathery wings. It was coming straight towards us. We all ducked as it narrowly zoomed over our heads. We heard another flap a few seconds later, and I knew it was turning around. It was moving so quick we couldn't really use our eyes to pinpoint it. We just followed the noise of the air being disturbed. The little girl was screaming, but the rest of us were quiet. There were only a few seconds left before whatever it was would come back down for another pass. Knowing this, I tried to take action. My heart was beating out of my chest as I slung my backpack over my shoulder. I unzipped it, rustling through the snacks and drinks to find the flare gun that I'd been playing with earlier. I could hear the huge beast flapping and gliding around us in circles. Without thinking too much, I grabbed the flare gun, shooting it up into the air, directly above us, not aiming at anything in particular. Lucky for us, my dad gave it to me already loaded. It made a big squeaky noise, and this bright red ball shot up from the gun, whizzing through the air. As it did, I heard this ungodly scream from the side of the road. To this day, I still can't accurately describe it. It sounded like a cow, yeah, but strained, and with its pitch lowered. After the thing screamed, we heard a few more heavy flaps as it seemed to flee before crashing through the trees. A minute later, and it was all over. The night was quiet again, and the thing was gone. We looked at each other, with Tom still clutching Clara awkwardly, like he was holding an oversized football. We jogged the rest of the way. As soon as we got in cell range, we called the police. State officers met us a few miles up, with two old Crown Vicks. I recall them being really suspicious of us. They thought we were high off of something. When the little girl corroborated what happened to her, they relaxed a little. I think they wrote it off as some sort of wild animal attack. One of the officers took Clara with them, and that was the last we ever saw of her. I don't know what happened next, but I sure hope they found her mother. Suffice to say, me and my friends respected the legend a lot more after that. We never saw it again, up until I moved out of state. Sometimes when I tell the story to others, they insist it was a wild horse chasing us for one reason or another. All I know is that horses don't have wings. Good luck to any people living around the Pine Barrens out there. Stay safe. The Shadows in the Small Town Republic From Listener This happened back in August 2019 in the small town of Republic in Washington State. This story was told to me by my other friend, Cliff. The reason I went to Republic was to visit my mother. I left her house when I was 20, and now I'm 22. My mother said she was getting lonely. My dad had left her with me as soon as I was six years old for no given reason at all, 
and I have a soft spot for my mom. So, of course, I would go to her house and keep her company. As soon as I arrived, I immediately called her. I sort of forgot exactly where she lived, so she told me where her address was. When I was at her house, she greeted me with open arms, just as she used to when I was little. We talked and talked. I never forgot how much of a talker she was. Before I moved, I always saw her chattering about with her friends, about whatever was on their minds. I always assumed it was boring stuff, so I never intervened, nor did I want to be anywhere near them while they talked. Anyway, I found her in the kitchen making something for dinner. She called me over, saying that she was missing something from the food, and told me to go get some from one of the stores nearby. Without hesitation, I replied with a yes. After all, I loved taking walks by myself. Now you should know I'm a girl. Guys might think you shouldn't be walking by yourself in the dark evenings. But listen, my mom didn't raise a cowardly little girl. She taught me self-defense, and I knew how to handle small weapons and fight. Anyway, it was evening now. I was able to go out and get whatever my mother wanted. It was both sort of cold and sort of warm, but I didn't mind. Not too many people were out and about, but I knew better. Creeps could be out there hiding where you'd least expect them. I always kept a good eye out. So, like I said, I'd made my way into the store and I found what my mother wanted pretty quick and exited. Not long after that, a bad feeling started to crawl over me. Like a very bad feeling. The type of feeling you get when something bad is about to happen or when something bad is nearby. I've only had this feeling a few times ever since I left my mother. Most of them weren't even that bad. I walked alone on the dark sidewalk. The feeling of dread was starting to make me want to stop walking altogether. It seemed the closer I got to my house, the more quickly the bad feeling washed over me like rain. I started to clench the small knife I had in my bag fearing that some creep would literally jump out from out of nowhere. Then I stopped. I scanned my surrounding area. Nobody there. Or at least that's what I thought. What is that? I immediately thought as my eyes saw something in the distance. From what I could tell, it seemed to be a person. Your normal, everyday person you see on the street. They were about six feet tall, easily taller than my five-foot self. But they were just standing there, not moving. People could be still, but never completely. Not like that. I began to wonder if it was even a person at all. Then I took out my phone and shone my light at it. The unthinkable happened. Things are supposed to be brighter when light is shown on them, right? Well, this figure was not. With my phone's flashlight on it, it didn't go brighter. It didn't become lit. Instead, I saw a completely black figure. Like a shadow, almost. But the shadow was not on the ground. It was so black that it looked like it was swallowing all the light from my phone. Now I understand why the people in horror films don't run when the killer or monster is charging at them. They freeze with fear. That's what I was experiencing.
The sudden fear of seeing this entity prevented me from moving. Then it started to move. Strangely enough, it moved like a video game character when the game glitches, moving forward, then back, then appearing closer than it was before. All the while, I trembled. Then another figure suddenly appeared from thin air, then another one, and another. Soon there was four or more black figures surrounding me. It was like they were blocking off any sort of escape route. They wanted me in the middle. Nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide. Even though they didn't have eyes, I could still feel the malevolent figure's gaze on me. It was filled with malice. There was a ringing and buzzing in my pocket. I don't know how, but I managed to pick up my phone, and thank goodness, it was my mother. She wanted to know where I was. But what was I going to tell her? How could I explain why I was taking too long? A long line at the store? I got the wrong thing? I couldn't just tell her what was happening right now, right? No way, I thought. She would never believe this. Where are you? My mom said over the phone. There was a slight cracking sound. As soon as she had spoken, the shadowy figures vanished, just like that. They were gone. Hello? My mother says again. Her voice snaps me out of my shock, and I finally reply. Yeah, sorry, there was a bit of confusion at the store. I'm not too far. Okay, but hurry up. She replied before hanging up. Ever since that day, I've been questioning my mind. I didn't tell my mother, because she would automatically think it was because I'm not with her and I'm being paranoid. I've been telling myself that too. I must have been seeing things that weren't there. But how could I believe that? The encounter with the four pitch black shadow men seemed very, very real. Never Buy a House on Craigslist by Rain Rider I guess everyone has heard about a Craigslist horror story, but no one expects to end up in one. I'd been thinking about leaving the city life behind for a while now. Guess I couldn't stand the bustle of the city anymore and longed for a more remote life. I'd saved up quite a bit of money over the years and decided to buy a house. When I saw the prices, though, my jaw dropped. I'd expected that buying a house was expensive, but I never thought that expensive. In my desperation, I opened Craigslist. I didn't expect to find anything there, but that's exactly what I did. The ad was as simple as it could be. Small house for sale, way below market value. I clicked on it in an instant. When I saw the price, though, I was sure the seller had made a mistake. There was no way someone would sell a house that cheap. The place looked decent from what I saw in the pictures. Eventually, I found the seller's phone number and called him. I honestly expected the price to be a mistake. Heck, maybe it was all a scam. Instead, I found myself on a call with a man named Wilbert Johnson. When he told me the place was still available, the first thing I asked about was the price. The old man assured me there was no mistake. It was an old house, he said, in the middle of nowhere, 
and he wanted to get the cell over with as soon as possible. There was a catch, though. He wanted the payment in cash only, because he did not trust the banks or any of their real estate agents. Some other people had shown interest before me, he said, but they'd all gotten cold feet at the mention of this. I didn't see a problem with it. Heck, things would be way quicker that way. I guess that was my first mistake. To make a long story short, a week later on a Saturday morning, I found myself on the three-hour drive to old Wilbert's house, which I hoped would soon be mine. When I arrived, the old man greeted me with a bright smile. He was a sturdy, hard man in his late fifties, from what I could tell. You, Mark? He asked as he reached out to greet me. I nodded. Yes, sir. Well, that's the place. He sat and stepped aside to allow me a better view of the small house. I had to look around for a bit before I stepped inside. The moment I did, the old floorboards welcomed me with a loud creak. The moment it happened, an anxious expression washed over the man's face. <laughs> Guess you were right, I said laughing. The place is pretty old. It sure has character, though. When he heard that, relief flooded over his face and his smile returned. Oh, that it has. Been living here for over thirty-odd years. Now then, how come you're selling it that cheap? The old man was quiet for a bit. His eyes wandered for a bit before he sighed. Tell you what, there's no reason to keep it to myself. It's because of Lisa's disappearance. Lisa? Another sigh followed. My wife, Elizabeth. Been almost two months now since she vanished. Walked right out that door over there and never returned. No one's seen her. No one's heard a thing. Just like that, vanished without a trace. Crap, I'm, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Nothing to do with you. He cut me off. Did everything I could. Talked to the neighbors, then the cops. Well, they searched half the damned county, but they found nothing. I kept searching. But by now... His voice trailed off as he shook his head. Can't keep living here. Everything reminds me of her. That painting over there. She drew it a good twenty years ago. See that tablecloth? She bought it at a flea market a couple of years back. Isn't it beautiful, Wilbert? She'd ask. Been stuck with the ugly thing ever since. Whenever I see it, I can't help but wonder where she went and what happened to her. It's just too much. <sighs> he broke up, his voice trailing off. I stood there, shuffling around, not sure what to say. I was never good at those things, people things, I mean. After a few moments, I opened my mouth when I heard something. It was a small, quiet sound, like scratching. In a moment, old Wilbert stepped up to an old radio and turned it on. I stared at him as the music drowned out the sound. Sir, what are you... When he noticed my stares, he looked embarrassed and turned the radio back off again. Well, that's another reason the place is so cheap. So, what's causing it? 
ghosts. I stared at him, but his expression didn't change. I opened my mouth to inquire what the heck was up with that when he burst out laughing. <laughs> God dang it. I'm pulling your leg. It's rodents. We've had a problem with the dang beasts for half a decade now. Don't know where the buggers come from, but they sure are persistent. They're digging through the dirt outside and crawl into the walls. Never been able to figure out how they do it. Might as well be a cat in there, too. Heard they sometimes crawl after mice or a cat and end up getting stuck. I shrugged. Well, I plan on renovating the place anyway. Remember you telling me about that. I've got quite a bit of junk stored up. Been planning to give the place a good old once-over myself, but with Lisa going missing and all that, I never had time to do it. With that, he led me to his garage and presented me with an assortment of tools and materials. Tell you what, I'll add it all to the house for free. God knows I can't take it with me anyway, and I sure as heck won't need it anymore. Take it as an apology for not telling you about the rodents beforehand. I thanked the old man wholeheartedly. Looking at the amount of stuff here, I might as well be looking at a half a grand. Heck, maybe even more. We talked more while the old man led me through the house. Here and there he stopped me and told me what sort of renovations he had planned and gave me detailed advice. Start with the second floor. Use this or that material. Do this that way, and so on. It sounded like solid advice, and I could tell the old man knew what he was talking about. Once the tour was over, we took on the sale, and I arranged to be back in a few days to finalize everything. The old man, in turn, told me he'd put together a little write-up of all the renovation advice. Once I was back, I handed him the money. He sighed again. Guess there's one last thing I gotta tell you. This place. Well, it's got a history. I looked up. First the rodents, and now what? It's probably all nonsense. He started shaking his head. But Lisa always talked about that stuff. She said back in the day, when folks still owned slaves... There had been a lynching out here. Never gave much of a ding about her old tales. But, this time I couldn't help but laugh. Was he pulling my leg again? Tell you what, I never believed in any of it. But Lisa swore she heard wailing and crying in the middle of the night. To be honest, I think it's just those dang kids down by the creek. What kids? There's this old shack down by the creek, not too far from here. Some local kids, teenagers mostly, hang out there, getting drunk and causing all kinds of trouble during the night. Well, it doesn't sound like anything I can't handle. It was a few minutes later that we shook on the dill. The old man handed me his notes and told me he'd written down his phone number. If I had questions about the renovations, I could call him. Once he'd driven off, I stared at what would be my new home. Quite the place, I thought. Sure, I'd have to put in quite a bit of work, 
but there was no way I'd get a cheaper property anywhere. For the first couple of nights, I didn't sleep in the place. There was still all the old man's furniture in there. Now, to feel comfortable here, I'd have to get rid of his stuff first. To be honest, it felt weird, disposing of someone's entire life and memories like that. Even worse was the darn scratching. It was there again and again. Sometimes it was quiet. Sometimes it was more frantic. Maybe there really was a cat stuck somewhere. I shuddered a bit. I liked cats. And I didn't want to think about one of them suffocating in my walls. The next day, my friend Mike arrived. I told him about the house I was buying. And he said he'd be happy to help me out with the renovations. To be honest... I think he wanted to get away from his wife and kids for a bit, do some good old handiwork, share a couple of cool ones with an old buddy. Well, it's quite the place. You really got it that cheap. Yeah, it's because the place is haunted and there are mice in the walls, and rats, and cats. Mike gave me a weird look. Come on, I'll tell you all about it over a beer or two. As the two of us sat on the floor in what would one day be my kitchen, I told him all about old Wilbert and the stories he'd told me. As if to prove that I wasn't bullcrapping him, the frantic scratching started again for a moment. He listened intently. Doesn't sound like mice to me. Could be rats, though. We're better off getting some poison or calling an exterminator. I considered it for a moment, but then I shook my head. If we get an exterminator, they'll cover the entire place in chemicals or God knows what. I'd rather get started on the renovations. Mike shrugged. Well, I warned you. Don't blame me if we find some giant rat colony in one of the walls here. We shared another beer before we started on the work. There was a lot to do. The floorboards were old and rotten in many places. The wallpaper was stained and old-fashioned, and some partition walls had to go, I decided. Either way, we had a busy few days ahead of us. Heck, maybe even a week. It wasn't long before we resorted to the old man's method of turning on the radio. The scratching, while quiet, was still somewhat distracting. Mike and I made some decent progress the first day. At first, he wanted to get himself a hotel room in the nearby town, but after a bit of back and forth, he agreed to stay. We spent the evenings talking about old stories from high school and college, and often Mike would tell me about his wife and kids. As much as he told me he was happy to have some time away, I could tell he missed them already. During our third night at the place, he woke me up in the middle of the night. Dude... You hearing this? He asked in a quiet, hushed voice. As I listened, I could hear the scratching, but there was something else. It was quiet, coming from quite a distance, but I was sure I heard it. It sounded as if someone was wailing or crying. I thought back to the old man's story about the lynching and what his wife had heard. Then I shook my head and remembered what he told me about the kids out here. Probably some drunk kid screwing around. The old guy told me they're gathering down by the creek to get drunk. Maybe they thought it'd be fun to mess with the new guy.
Mike nodded, but he still looked unnerved. Yeah, I guess you're right. Want to go out and teach him a lesson? I laughed, but shook my head. There was no way I'd go out in the middle of the night to chase some teenagers. I also didn't want to become known as the local crazy guy. Eventually, we got back to sleep. Still, somehow my mind lingered on the story. That scratching, that wailing. There was something about it that didn't seem to fit. The next day, busy with renovations again, I'd already pushed all those thoughts away. Guess that was my second mistake. We doubled down on our efforts. Me trying to find a hint of those darned rodents, and Mike most likely wanting to get out of here. He'd always been the superstitious type. When the wailing started again on the fourth night, Mike told me he'd get a hotel room if it would persist. I retorted that it was those kids again, but this time he wouldn't have it. Yeah, so you're telling me there's some group of kids out there that got nothing better to do in the middle of the night? Two times in a row? Heck, man, I don't know. Maybe it's a cat stuck somewhere. I sure as heck don't believe there are any freaking ghosts. Mike grunted but said nothing. For a while, I considered going out there to figure out who or what was causing it. But not long after, I drifted off to sleep again. At this point, we were on the fifth day of renovations. The place was almost barren by now. We'd started on the upper floor first. After that, we'd taken down the partition walls and had stripped down the old wallpaper. Not knowing too much about renovations myself, I'd followed the old man's guidelines almost to the letter. That was my third mistake. So, what else do you want me to take care of? Well, you could clean the garage for starters, and that lawn looks like it hasn't been cut in months. All right, hilarious, Mark, he said when he saw the enormous grin on my face. Tell you what, I started. How about we take a bit of a break for the rest of the day? Tomorrow we take care of the floorboards down here, and that's it. God knows those need to be replaced. As if to prove what I'd said... I switched my balance a bit, and the floorboards creaked in answer. Sounds good, but if we hear any weird noises again, I'm out of here. I sighed but nodded. Then I realized something. I had heard none of the scratching today. Maybe our ruckus had driven off whatever rodents had infested the place. I didn't know a dang thing about mice or rats. That night we sat together until long after midnight. I'd brought out my old laptop, and we spent the entire time with some old movies and a bottle of whiskey. Not a sound was heard all night. No more scratching, and sure as heck no wailing. Told you there were no ghosts here, I slurred. <laughs> yeah, whatever, Mike said laughing. Taking care of the old floorboards was much tougher than I'd imagined. With a hangover, that is. Still, somehow we made decent enough progress, and by noon we were done with the first half of the house. Guess those rats really are gone, aren't they? I shrugged. Guess so. Not a sound. To be honest, I half expected them to linger below those old boards. 
Sure hope they stay the heck away. We continued joking around and having a good time. It all changed when we found the basement. As we removed the floorboards in the old man's storage room, we stumbled upon an old hatch. Once our initial surprise was over, we pried it open, revealing a staircase. All right, man, what the heck? The basement, I guess, I said, matter-of-factly. Yeah, I ain't blind, but why the heck is it hidden like that? Things still hadn't clicked. Who knows? Maybe he just didn't use it. Heck, maybe it was infested by rodents, so he sealed it off. Yeah, or it's his secret serial killer basement. Dude, not funny, I cursed. All right, all right. You want to check it out? As I looked down the dark stairs that led somewhere below, a feeling of apprehension washed over me. I didn't feel so sure about my words anymore. Finally, I nodded. We each got a hold of a flashlight and started our descent. There was no light down there, and for a moment I half expected the old hatch to be thrown shut by no other than old Wilbert himself. Crap, man, this is creepy, I mumbled. Will you stop? I don't like this any more than you do. Once we'd made it down the stairs, we found ourselves in a small, damp room. It was empty. Small, isn't it? Sure is, I said. The entire basement was no bigger than one of the rooms above. Wasn't the basement usually the same size as the house? At least there are no rats, I said. Yeah, but this wall here is kind of weird. What do you mean? Well, he started. Look at the moss and the dirt on all the others. This one's different. Looks kind of new to me. Now that he'd said it, I noticed it too. Sure, the wall was as damp as the rest, but there was no moss on it or anything. I watched as Mike reached out his hand and knocked against the wall. What are you doing? I asked. Shh. He shushed me. He went to one of the other walls and knocked there, then came back and knocked again. Sounds hollow. We both stared at each other. You think that's where the rodents came from? A minute later, we were down there again, starting to tear down the wall. After a few heavy hits, the first of the bricks collapsed inwards. I instinctively took a step back, expecting rats or mice to pour from the hole, but there was nothing. We inched forward, peeking into the hole, and that's when we realized what this was, the second half of the basement. Mike had already gotten his flashlight and beamed inside. At first we saw nothing, but then we saw something on the floor. No, not something. There's someone inside. I pressed out. We redoubled our efforts, and soon we'd broken down enough of the wall to enter. The person inside had long gray hair, wore a dirty nightgown, and was female. The old woman's face was frozen into a mask of perpetual terror, and she was without a doubt dead. 
when I saw the long, bloody scratch marks all over the walls, it finally clicked. A moment later, I was back upstairs, and I called the police, telling them what I'd found. There was no need for them to tell me the woman's name. The moment I'd understood what was going on here, I knew who she was. She was Elizabeth Johnson, the old man's wife. Warning. The following story contains a wild animal attack against cattle and people. The Stalker From Kiko When I was twelve, I had a friend named Imogen. We were particularly fond of each other. We did everything together. I cherished small moments with her as if the next moment I might drop dead where I stood. It was an uneventful life for a twelve-year-old, sleeping, eating, morning school, and time for Imogen. And I liked it that way. I met Imogen first a short walk from my house, following some morning lessons. I didn't have many friends at the ripe age of twelve, and I suppose you could consider me a loner. I've been called a lot of things. Odd, certainly creepy, but rarely friend. The girl was occupying a sunlit clearing, busying herself with art or something close to it. I hardly knew what to think at first. This creature of black hair, fair complexion, and white garb, sitting hunched with a poor notebook, at which she was savagely sawing away with a weathered wooden pencil, clutched in her bony fingers. At first sight, I thought she was some sort of ghostly apparition, with how she stood out against the soft greens and browns. But as I drew closer, I heard her humming softly, and I reached out a hand to touch her. I'm Emogen. How do you do? She asked without turning. The suddenness of her reply might have startled me, if not for the light, soothing quality of her voice. Ah, oh, I beg your pardon? I replied awkwardly. I suppose fair. And how about you? My eyes traced her back. Her black satin dress hung over her shoulders somewhat elegantly, somewhat carelessly. It's nice today, I suppose. Any day that's nice deserves to be enjoyed, and I do enjoy my coloring. She replied dryly after a pause. Her face lifted to look through the spotted canopy above us, and I finally saw the whole of her complexion. I agree. I said, sitting quietly beside her. What are you drawing? Nothing important, she replied, moving so that I could see her sketchbook. Just a flower I saw a while ago. It was a flower, and a beautiful rendition at that. The lines folded neatly, and the colors blended perfectly. I gazed at it in awe, for it was incredibly lifelike, as though she had placed it in front of me. Oh, it's beautiful, I whispered, running my fingers across the rough paper. Uh, may I? Wordlessly, she handed me the sketchbook, and I leafed through it, marveling at her skill. We talked for hours afterwards, long into twilight, and we promised to meet in the forest. And from that day on, we became an inseparable pair. 
We saw each other nearly every day and did the normal things that girls did. Tea parties, painting, dressing up, but also some rougher activities such as digging, tag, tree climbing and such. It wasn't long before she invited me over to spend the night. I was never one to have friends, much less slumber parties. Needless to say, I was excited. We were both excited. It took some time to convince my parents, rightly so, as I had never stayed the night at someone else's house before, and I had come to expect that any field in which they didn't have experience, they approached with caution. But soon, I was standing in the dried-out riverbank, a backpack filled to bursting with clothes and games slung around my shoulder and a sleeping bag under my arm. Imogen was there as well, leaning against a rough oak tree, her sketchbook clutched in her hands as it always had been. We sat a while in silence, listening to the cacophony of birdsong and wind rushing through the trees, keeping pace with the erratic scratching of Imogen's pencil. When she'd finished drawing, we played some games. Tag, hide-and-seek, hopscotch, all the outdoor games you'd expect children to play. We cherished the woods, but as the afternoon faded to dusk and the shadows grew longer across the forest floor, it took on a menacing quality. Imogen insisted that we be present for dinner, so without much delay, we raced through the forest. We broke the tree line just as the last hint of sun settled over the forest. I gasped when I first beheld her estate. It was wonderful. Even in the fading dusk light, a vibrant white turned slightly yellow by the warm illumination coming through every window and two stories. It towered over the amber farmland that stretched endlessly behind it. Imogen must have caught my awestruck expression. She turned and latched onto my hand, tugging it gently. It's rather quaint, she said lightly, her gaze shooting into the forest. But come on now, we mustn't be late for dinner. She dragged me to the house rather quickly explaining what to do so that her parents would think highly of me whilst we ran. Take off your shoes on the carpet, which I'd never actually seen a carpet except for the TV. Mind your manners at the table. Don't make a ruckus upstairs, and leave the restrooms cleaner than you found them. She slowed to a stop, turning to me with apprehension. Her voice was softer, slower, and she looked as if she was almost nervous. And whatever you do, she said, looking me dead in the eyes, you mustn't part the curtains after eleven. But why? The corners of her mouth dipped into a disapproving frown. You just mustn't have faith in me, Evelyn. I nodded slowly. The grave expression on her face upset me slightly, but I hadn't time to stew on my feelings. For, after one last glance to the woods, she again tugged me to the house. We entered the house loudly, Imogen kicking off her shoes as she ran to the dining room, and I following suit. I slowed to an anxious shuffle as I neared the doorway, hearing bubbling laughter and chatter beyond the alcove. 
You're late, Imogen. Fifteen minutes late, to be exact. I heard the harsh voice of a woman say from where I stood. Oh, mother, you know I was kept up. Imogen's gaze flitted around the room searchingly, finally landing on my frail frame, pressed into the deepest shadows of the room. You haven't met Evelyn yet, have you, mother? Father? Her mother finally glanced in my direction, her mouth forming a sort of O-shape in her surprise. Oh, my dear, I haven't even noticed you. She said, rather flustered. Please, do sit down. We're delighted you could come over. Imogen speaks very highly of you, and we're glad she finally has someone her age to spend her time with. She pulled a chair, just as Imogen sat in her own, and beckoned me to sit. Graciously, I did, watching as she rushed to set the table. Imogen turned to me, and we began discussing in earnest what we would do that night. Sometime later, after we had finished dinner, Imogen and I trudged up the stairs to her room. I marveled at the high ceilings, cherishing the feeling of the soft, sandy-colored carpet beneath my feet. Upon arriving in her room, Imogen put her bag in a dark corner, running her hands along her mattress, feeling its rough texture, as she sat down on her bed. I lingered for a moment, unsure of what to do. Soon, however, I followed her onto the bed, leaving my own bag leaning against the corner of her bed. We ate candy, watched horror movies, anything a kid could ever wish to do at their first sleepover. It was during the construction of our first of five iterations of a blanket fort that I had the urge to go to the restroom. I got to my feet slowly and shambled my way to the door. Imogen caught my arm on the way and shot me a questioning look, and behind her eyes I caught a glimpse of terror. Restroom, I said cautiously, shaking my arm from her grasp, if I may. Her gaze softened and she got up to follow me. Second door on the left. A pause. Don't part the curtains. I nodded confused, and went about my business. Imogen watched me from the door a while, until I was at the bathroom. It was a small bathroom, though still larger than my own, and pearl white. Directly opposite it was the first set of stairs, and at the landing, where they turned to face the kitchen, a massive window, ebony curtains drawn tightly, like massive barred doors. I was captivated by them, and Imogen's words caught in my head. What could be so dangerously important that the most ultimate rule was that it not be seen or be allowed to see inside? My eyes lingered on the sliver of light protruding through the curtains. It felt like wave upon wave of malice radiated from those curtains, and for a moment I thought I saw that sliver of light interrupted by something foreign to my knowledge beyond the window. I dared not linger any longer. I went about my business, not even looking at the window as I returned, though I could still feel its malice. I entered the room quietly. Imogen was watching some horror movie on the TV. What is behind that window? I asked. 
sitting beside her. Pardon? she asked, turning to face me. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, what's behind that window and those lovely black curtains? Her expression morphed into one of terror for a moment. You didn't open them, did you? No, no, I didn't, I assured her. They're just rather quaint, and I was wondering why they must be drawn so tightly at night. You have such a lovely estate, and all those lights outside... It seems like such a shame to keep them as they are. She sat in silence for a moment, her face twisted in anguish. I suppose if you really must know. A pause. She turned to her bed, rising and slipping over to the wall beside it. From underneath the mattress, she pried a beaten leather sketchbook. She opened it and began leafing through it, then stopping on one of its pages. Tentatively, she pushed it to me, her face contorted with fear, eyes wide with anguish. What is this? I asked, looking at it confusedly. The entire page was colored black, pitch black. I could hardly make out heads or tails of it. As I stared longer, certain features began to take prevalence. A line darker than the others, a white spot two white spots, a thin gray line. The chaotic blackness evolved into something more ancient and terrifying. I could only make out its vague shape, and yet I was still paralyzed with fear. It was tall, I could tell that at least, tall enough to reach the second-story window, even though it appeared to be slightly hunched over. It was thin, unnaturally thin, its arms and legs were long, longer than I'd seen, so long that even with its hunched gait, its razor-like claws dragged across the ground. Its eyes, or what I perceived to be eyes, were but small glowing dots arranged unevenly on its head. And its smile, God help me, I shall never forget that smile, it was curved and jagged and cruel. I thrust the book back onto the bed, releasing myself from its spell. What in God's name is that? That, that thing? I cried to her. It's hideous, terrifying. How on earth did you capture it? It's a stalker. Or at least that's what my father likes to call it. Supposedly he encountered it on a business trip in Washington. And it followed him. All the way back. She slid the book under the mattress. It waits there, just outside the house every night. I know nothing about it, except that it lives in the woods. But why? I don't know that, either. I pause. Do you understand... Now, you mustn't open the curtains. I nodded, thoroughly terrified. I'd always thought Imogen's drawings to be lifelike, but that one had an old air to it, a negative feeling, and it filled me with dread. Imogen's face softened slightly, and she held her hand out. Let's go to bed. It's rather late. I nodded, 
and we clamored to get into our sleeping bags. I shut my eyes, though I didn't sleep. I didn't feel safe in that house anymore, and I never would again. Sometime later, when the entirety of the estate was quiet, but for Imogen's rhythmic snoring, something changed. I didn't know what it was, but some old instinctive part of me was filled with terror. I sat up quickly and looked around. The whole of the room looked unchanged in the soft yellow of Imogen's nightlight. Imogen, I whispered, turning and shaking her gently. Imogen. She didn't stir. I was about to call her for a third time when I heard something from outside. It was the pained screaming of a cow, high-pitched and gut-wrenching and the low bleeding of the rest as they clamored to get away from whatever was outside. I stood carefully and walked to the door, opening it slightly. Imogen's parents had left the lights on so we could find our way about during the night. The awful sound seemed to be coming from the window. I stared at it for what felt like forever, rooted to the spot as if in a sort of daze. Slowly the noises were silenced and my terror was replaced with curiosity. I shambled to the window tentatively, terrified of what I might find. Then I heard another sound that I was not expecting, but which filled me with more terror still. From beyond the black satin curtains, I heard the unmistakable sound of crunching bone. I hooked one finger delicately around the corner, wondering if I dared to look outside. I pulled at the curtains slowly, opening them just enough to see the thing outside. In the darkness, I could make out the general figure of a hideously emaciated man. An enormous figure, towering much taller than the drawing Imogen had shown me. It held the half-eaten carcass of a cow in its grasp, dipping its unnaturally long neck to take a bite every few seconds, accompanied by another crunch. It paused as if pondering for a moment before its bright white beady eyes shot to the window. The last thing I saw was its hideous smile, a jagged fanged smile, spread wider and part to taste the air. I left the curtains slightly parted and backed away from them slowly. I heard the thing get up and walk over. Its huge, lumbering steps made the walls tremble as it moved closer. I ran as quickly as I could then, diving behind an alcove and slamming my back against the wall, trying desperately to conceal myself. I heard the thing's steps grow louder and then stop. I held my breath, too terrified to look or to move. I heard it then, against the pounding blood in my head. Then I heard an awful shattering sound and a terrifying, unearthly scream. As the thing penetrated the window with its long, bony arm... It scratched at the carpet with its horrible, hooked claws, spreading blood everywhere. I didn't know if it was the cow's or its own. I stayed in that hunched position for the entirety of the night, 
until I saw a crack of sunlight against the bathroom door, and I heard the thing get up and lumber away. Then I ran. I ran as quickly as I could and leapt into my sleeping bag. My relationship with Imogen didn't last long after that. I was bedridden for months, too terrified to look outside. My family faithfully serviced me until I felt brave enough to leave my room, but I never went back into that forest, and I never spoke to Imogen, except for the few times she came to visit me. I got a call earlier this week. Some feeling I got when I heard my mother on the other side compelled me to write this. I'm very sorry to tell you this, she said. I know you hadn't spoken in a very long time, but Imogen... Well, Imogen has passed away. They think it was a bear attack. It broke into her house and dragged her outside in the night. Her mother and father asked if you would like to attend the funeral. I politely responded no. I was caught up with my studies, so I bid my mother good night. I hung up the phone and went back to my textbook. Amidst the gentle whisper of rain on the windowpane, and a soft... grew teeth. From Cuz Anime, That's Why, 1337. My father's grandmother once told him a story of a man from the 1900s in Mexico that had a very heart-stopping experience. Said man, let's call him Jose, a very common Mexican name, loved to drink. So he and one of his friends are finishing drinking at a local bar one night. When they leave the bar, they say their goodbyes and go their separate ways for the evening. As I stated before, it's Mexico in the 1900s. For most people, you either traveled by your own two feet or by horse. Luckily for Jose, he had a horse. So off he went, back to his home late at night, taking the dirt trails. Along the way, he passes under a bridge. As he comes out the other side... He begins to hear what sounds like a child crying. <laughs> he stops and gets off his horse. He looks in the direction of the crying. He soon finds the source of the crying. It's a little boy crying all alone. He asks the child if he's alright. I'm lost. Can you help me? Jose, of course, agrees to help the little boy, so he picks him up and places him on the rear of the saddle. He gets back on, and then they're on their way. As they travel along, Jose feels the little kid poke his back a few times. So, Jose asks, what's the matter? The young boy responds, Daddy, Daddy, look, I grew tea. When Jose looks back, he's face to face with a horrifying sight. What was once a little boy now set a dark figure with rows of sharp, long, white teeth smiling at him 
with a pair of eyes that radiated death itself. Turning white with fear, Jose's only reaction was to pull back the reins of the horse, which causes the horse to fall backwards. Luckily, he didn't get caught in the middle and just fell off the back. Jose wasted no time getting up and looking for his horse, but unfortunately the horse had been spooked and ran off into the night. Jose proceeded to do the same and hightail it out of there, not even daring to test his luck. He didn't look back. The following day, when his friend asked to go for some drinks, he said only a little, because he didn't want to stay too late. Werewolf at my door From Poptacular Werewolf This happened a few years ago. At the time, we lived in a small mountain town in New York. Spring, summer, and fall were full of tourists because of our big lake. In winter, it was a ghost town, especially in bad weather. We lived in an old farmhouse at the base of the mountain, so our back porch had a decent view of said mountain and surrounding woods. In winter, it gets creepily quiet. One winter night, I was walking home from the gym. It was snowing and bitter cold. Now, getting across town wasn't hard, even in the snow. The main street was a mile long at that. Our house was thankfully close to the main road. My friends were walking with me for half the journey, until they split off to go their own way home. I was taking my usual shortcut past the ball field, when I saw movement coming from the upper field. I didn't think much of it. Yeah, we had bears and pumas, but they tended to shy away from humans. I was honestly more worried about drunk teens starting trouble. Stupidly, I stopped to see if I could make out what was in the upper field. At first, it did look like a weird bear, sort of hunched over. Then it stood up. It was big, way bigger than the black bears we have, who by this point should still be hibernating. Then I noticed it had long ears on top of its head. I swear at that point my heart stopped. My legs felt stuck. I watched as it sniffed the air, its massive head turning in my direction. If I didn't start moving, I knew this could be my last night alive. Somehow, my feet remembered how to work, and I slowly made my way home. I made sure to keep half an eye on that creature as I walked. After a few feet, though, I lost sight of it. Now, I know you should never run from a predator, but my brain was screaming to get away. I raced as fast as I could down the street until I saw my house. As I rounded our fence, I saw it. There was a street lamp near the road that went up the mountain and around the lake. This creature had dark, matted fur huge, yellow, seemingly glowing eyes, and very big teeth. Now I've been a Halloween fan since I was a kid. I love movie monsters, and this creature was very similar to a werewolf. Then it snarled at me, and my blood froze. I'd never been so scared in all my life. Before the thing could take another step, I jumped over our fence, 
bolting up the stairs and running into the house, as if the hounds of hell were chasing me, because it felt like they actually were. As soon as I got inside, I locked the door, then shut and locked all the other doors and windows. My mom asked me what was wrong. I told her there was a bear. I knew she would not believe me if I told the truth. I didn't sleep that whole night, and when morning came, I had to let the dogs out to use the bathroom. And that's when I saw them. Very large paw prints in the snow around the house. They traveled from the fence up our porch stairs, around the wraparound porch, and down into the yard. The dogs didn't want to be out long, which I was thankful for. To think that thing was that close, what if it had tried to get inside? After this experience, I never saw the creature again. If you ever plan on walking mountain roads at night, in the winter, don't. You never know what's actually out there. <laughs>